Hello and welcome to the Movie Robcast. I'm your host, Rob Wallace, and as always, it's a delight to say I'm joined by my co-host, Mr. Rob Daniel. And as always, it is an absolute delight to be here. And well, we are approaching the end of our James Cameron adventure, uh, with only two films left to discuss before we arrive at Avatar 2 The Way of Water. Um, Mr. Daniel, what, uh, what are those two films? Titanic, and then we're going to go into outer space with Avatar... So, yes, thanks to all those people that have listened to this quite epic series so far, and we hope you enjoy the last two sections of our James Cameron deep dive. Yes, as, as, as Mr. Daniels just said, we'll be starting off with uh, Titanic, the first of James Cameron's highest grossing movies of all time. <laughs> um, him, him being the only director, I think, who can say that. Or maybe not. But the previous directors who held that record? That's an interesting point. So... E.T., obviously, wasn't Jaws the biggest film of all time? And then E.T., then maybe Jurassic Park? So yes, Spielberg. Spielberg would have held that for a bit. I think Spielberg's a safe bet. And uh, so yes, Avatar is still number one. So we will see where Avatar The Way of Water lands when it gets released on Friday. And Avatar 1 was released on the 18th of December. This is being released on the 16th of December. It seemed by the end of the year for Avatar 1 that it was obviously going to be an absolutely huge movie and was going to place pretty high in biggest films of all time. Um, Just in the way that it was getting the weekly box office, but also the feedback scores, yeah, the passion scores from the audience, all that kind of stuff. It just suggested that it was going to be a film that was going to stay at number one for a while. So this has the same time frame. So by the end of the year, we should know where Avatar is likely to play, sorry, where Avatar 2 is likely to place in the top 10 films of all time. And as James Cameron has said, it needs to place three or four to break even. So, <laughs> but yes, uh, first we're going to be talking to Alex Leadbeater about Titanic. Let's set sail. journey back in time in search of a mystery locked beneath the sea this January you will be given the key we're going to America Forget it, boy. You'll never get next to the likes of her. Don't come any closer. I'll let go. No, you won't. You will not to see that boy again. I'm the king of the world! That made you think you could put your hands on my fiance. It's not up to you to save me, Jack. He's got you trapped. If you don't break free, you're gonna die. It's a ship. There's only so many places she can be. Find her. Shall be no more death. 
And now we're going to be discussing, well, until Avatar, the highest grossing film of all time, Titanic, for which we're joined by Alex Ledbetter, content director of Screen Rant, Collider and CBR. Alex, welcome to the pod. Thank you for having me on. I lived with Rob for three years and yeah, this is the really. first time I've finally been invited on the podcast. Yes, yeah, sorry about that. that <laughs> just to clarify, you lived with Rob Wallace for three years. Oh yes. So hopefully this is the first of many appearances. It's, it's the perfect movie to start me out on the podcast with. Yeah, because you're quite a fan. I'm a, I'm a big fan. Big fan of the movie, but big, big fan of Titanic generally. Uh, in fact, just yesterday I bought the Lego Titanic. Uh, finally took the plunge. How but many been, sections does it come in? It comes in three, but it does break apart, but not in a not in a direct callback. But yeah, no, I love, um, love Titanic. It's been uh, an obsession of mine since childhood. And partly because of this film. Um, kind of led me into the, the world of Titanic. Well, let's start with that then. What is it about the story that really hooked you? <sighs> It's, I think, the, the visual aspect, which is ironic because obviously there's no actual, um, you know, visuals of the time. But, you know, you look at the cover of uh, A Night to Remember, you look at all the amazing artwork that then inspired the movie, just the sight of the ship sinking. And then it's one of those stories, the more you dig, the more there is. So, you know, you know about the iceberg, you know about the book, I mean, I'm basically doing the, the Brock Lovett speech. You know, you know the basic stuff, but as you get deeper, there's much, much more interesting things. Like, how did it actually sink? How did the iceberg damage the ship? Uh, all the human stories on there. There's there's so much to it. And every bit you go deeper reveals something else about it. But then it also ties into wider history. It ties into wider maritime history. ties into wider social history. So as I've got older, seeing how it all fits in this one moment has been fascinating. But it's it's just the, the sight of it, like the band and the lights being on so late, that that stuff sticks in the mind when you're very young. No, absolutely. So, see, well, well, weirdly enough... Um... Rob, um, Rob, Mr. D, um, not myself, um, went to see the extended edition of JFK just this weekend past. And it's one of those films that I think in the same way that's part of the zeitgeist, not just in terms of the filmmaking, but in terms of the event that it dramatises. And it's one of those kind of events in kind of, I guess, certainly Western history that really captures the imagination. Because as you say, there are so many layers to it. There are so many, like the, the, the social and cultural historical aspects of it are just fascinating. And so many conspiracy theories. And so many conspiracy theories. <laughs> so many great Titanic conspiracy <laughs> theories. Also, you know, it's an event that is so well known, so well documented, so well covered by the time the movie comes out. And yet the movie manages to, you know, really captivate the view of it the idea of the that trial and the sort of you know conspiracy obviously existed beforehand but really you think of that movie when you think of that uh, situation and the same goes for titanic like it's hard to separate cameron's version of events from the historical correct version and, of events and that just came out like it came out just what one year after the miniseries uh, what Titanic? Yeah, yeah. So they made the uh, miniseries the, like the like the year before. Yeah, wasn't the miniseries made with the knowledge that there was a movie coming? I think, I think, so, it, yeah. I think it was getting ahead of the ahead of the trend. Titanic's always been about trends. Like twenty twelve got so many TV shows, got the re release of this, um, and it led to a bunch of imitators as well. A lot of things that you know either directly were inspired by it. Um, you know, you had a lot of TV show parodies like Futurama and then things like Pearl Harbor. Like the impact is profound when I haven't talked about the movie yet I would say when you've got Brock Lovett in it going like you know it's been 85 years since Titanic and it's like and it's been 25 years oh it's 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 weird watching the contemporary opening uh, and it now being a period movie like re- really set in the past and feeling like a different era the technology they have the the way that all is, is is so different and the fact that we could have a connection to someone who was an adult on the Titanic now you know the last survivor of the Titanic, uh, who's a baby when it sank, died in, I think before the centenary. So like we are so removed from actually that being an event, we've got only secondhand sources now. Uh, whereas there, the whole point of the movie is we still have a connection to this amazing bit of history. 
yeah. um, through Rose. Okay, then. So what is... And let's throw this over to Alex. So what is the synopsis for this movie? How long you got? Um, <laughs> I mean, the, the synopsis is big ship, egotistical men, ship sinks. That is that is the plot. That's I'm sure what Variety was glibly saying would happen, you know, what the movie was about uh, in 1997 before it came out. It's, it's a story about, it's a love story. It's about two people who meet, one is rich, one is poor, and they fall in love and despite everything decide to be together. And then halfway through their story, the ship they're on hits an iceberg and begins sinking and it turns into a disaster movie. That is the, the basic plot. And then the movie itself, this is the biggest story is the framing device, where in the modern day, 1997, this guy is searching for a lost jewel. And it's basically a MacGuffin, uh, but it's the story of him trying to find the jewel and eventually understanding the uh, the majesty of Titanic, the, the, the true enigma and the true jewel isn't the money. The real jewel was the love that... The, the, ice, the iceberg that, <laughs> that we made along the way. The real iceberg was the... Whatever it was. <laughs> you can cut that out. <laughs> That's saying. When this film was being made, it had the worst advanced word of mouth. It was a Titanic movie that was being filmed on dry land in Mexico. There were all these stories coming out that... Uh, the camera had gone mad and was using CGI extras instead of real people, which actually is in the film, but there's a very, very good reason for that. Um, he was using CGI breath uh, so that you could see the breath coming out, and it was costing millions to do this. It had run so far over budget that he'd had to sacrifice his fee of $8 million or something like that. And it was going to be a complete disaster. And Fox and Paramount thought they were going to lose $100 million conservatively was the estimate and Cameron I think he himself said in the weeks building up to release it's like the studios have just been diagnosed with a terminal cancer that's how everyone was acting uh, this was going to be such a bomb then it gets released and actually opens to 25 million dollars in the states because it got released in December of 97 got released here I think the 23rd of January obviously of 98 and so it had like an okay opening but then it built and built and built. And by the time it got here a month later, it had already been at number one for four weeks and was showing no signs of slowing down. And it just caught a mood. I mean, I think it is a classic movie. One of the reasons why is because it's like, well, this just taps into so many archetypes of storytelling. It is Romeo and Juliet on a doomed liner. There is the disaster of the Titanic particularly this grand vessel that was the biggest moving object ever made by man at that point that sunk on its maiden voyage. I mean, that's just such a thing to capture the imagination. The love story aspect of it, the fact that it's an upstairs-downstairs romance, that also gives you the ability to explore the entire ship. All this stuff is just so clever. And then halfway through, and re-watching it again, it was, I was actually surprised that it is almost about halfway through. It's like, oh my God, it hits the iceberg and turns into a disaster action movie, but never loses the love story. And is never crass in the way it handles a real life event either. It doesn't go full Poseidon Adventure. It's very thoughtful in the way that it approaches that. And that allows it to be a very emotional disaster movie. And I think that's a big part of it. Like whenever I watch the movie, I genuinely just want the ship to sail past and uh, Jack and Rose to, to go have their life together. And I think the movie does such a good job of making you care about those people and like people mocked that that whole thing and I think a lot of that came from like anti-teen girl kind of feelings at the time because obviously Leonardo DiCaprio came a star out of this but 
it really works, the love story. And you care about it to the point that when disaster strikes, you really don't want it to happen. And so you're fully there. But it's the it's the emotion of the disaster, the emotion of the action and all of the, you know, behind all that CGI budget you talked about. That's the thing that really strikes. It's not just empty spectacle. It's something that's got real, and not just because it's real, but it has real heft behind it in the story as well. I think yeah. partly because it's so immediately iconic <clears throat> and it's so parodyable, you know, I'm king of the world, all of that. It's It lends itself to parody so immediately to the extent that obviously when Cameron collected the Oscar, he did I'm king of the world, which was very much, uh, you know, flipping the V to all the critics being like, I've just, you know, you said this film is going to be a disaster. It's the highest grossing film of the world. Just in, in all history, I've just one best picture. <laughs> so it's like, it's a pretty phenomenal... There's the irony that you're making a film about a ship that was meant to be unsinkable, that was meant to be this grand triumph and obviously ended in tragedy, and everybody was predicting that your film was going to be this tragedy and it's just ended in triumph. Yeah. actually reminded me of something there, Alex, in terms of just what you said about the sensitivity of the film. There was a lot of criticism that he was even doing this at all, that it was, like, unethical and bad taste to make a love story set on the Titanic, which was such a tragedy because, yeah, 1,500 people died. That was another thing that he was being attacked. It was going to be a crass movie. And of course you watch it and it's not crass. When I watched the film the first time, I actually forgot that it was going to sink and got a bit annoyed because it was like, oh no, I was actually quite enjoying this story. <laughs> so when you see the iceberg, it's like, oh. I actually forgot for a moment that's how this film was obviously going to end. That's a sign of a good story being told. Well, that's what you're saying there about, you know, knowing how it ends. That was another one of the big criticisms going into it. It was like, why are you telling a story about the Titanic? We know how it ends. The ship sinks. And the movie does something really, really smart, which is something that very few period movies about a famous event do, is it, it spoils it up front. It opens and, yeah, there's a bit of ambiguity behind the heart of the ocean and all that mystery, but it shows a, a CGI digital version of the ship sinking and it explains it, which is good from a setup standpoint. It means when the ship's sinking, you know exactly what's going on, but also it basically goes, yeah, the ship does sink. Here's, here is on the bottom of the ocean. They spend five, ten minutes at the start doing that and that's great because it means that, you know, you know where it's going. The audience is aware. A lot of those criticisms are gone, but it's also that they can then go, all right, now let's get to the story we, we want to tell. And so Cameron can go underwater and do his thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's the thing, like, you know, DiCaprio's breakout film, the film he just, it was um, Romeo and Juliet. We know how Romeo and Juliet ends. It doesn't make it less effective for it. DiCaprio kind of establishing himself as the, the, the handsome, hunky, charismatic, pretty young male love interest who dies tragically. And how he can do that in consecutive films, and yet they both kind of work, I guess, depending on your reading, on their own merits. Yeah, another thing that Cameron did very well was that he insisted that Leonardo DiCaprio be the lead of this film because the studio wanted Matthew McConaughey. Johnny Depp was offered this and actually said that he regretted turning it down. But it's like, no, this, one of the reasons this got to be the biggest film of all time was because Leonardo DiCaprio is just such a beautiful star in this movie. And to your point, it really, really turned him into a star. And that's another great thing about the film is that it is 50s melodrama but it is also teen romance and that's why you had girls and their nans going to see the film together because it ticked off both those boxes but it just doesn't seem calculated it doesn't seem like it's trying to get into like a four quadrant it's telling a story that has a universal appeal but telling it really well but I think it was intended as being four quadrant. He, he knew that he needed to have that story, but it doesn't feel doesn't focus group to death. That's no. right, yeah. Leo and uh, Kate are, so, are very good in it. And I think a lot of the criticism of the movie that came out after its release is like, oh, the dialogue's bad or the, you know, this love story's bad. And, and it's not. It, it's, it's got some, you know, yeah, it's, it's very sort of direct lines and very clear meaning, but it's really well performed. And that dialogue is really memorable. He reuses some of the dialogue in Avatar, the I see you in Avatar, 
comes from this movie when he's doing the thing with the he's drawing the hands and he's like I saw her I see her hands and he's like I see you that line then becomes the sort of I love you in Avatar like the dialogue has real resonance whether it has resonance in Avatar or not is up in the air but like the amount of quotes and the amount of things that work as yes a parody as you said Rob but also work in the moment earnestly I think is is really striking yeah I think you know and you were sort of saying it never loses sight of the romance but there is at least a 10 kind of 15 minute section in the film where Jack and Rose aren't in it where the film is focusing entirely on the lives of either the secondary, almost like the the, instrument, the extras. Mm. And it is kind of dramatising the lives of the crew and the passengers. And Jack and Rose aren't, aren't Jack and Rose, you know, off, you know, having the adventures in the battles of the ship. And obviously they're, you're worried about them and you're concerned about them, but then you don't miss them because you are engaged in the lives of these other people and hoping that, you know, Jack's friend Fabrizio, you've got... um. Fabrizio Tommy Tommy and you know historically that it's not going to end well and you know that the majority of these people are going to die and yet it can still do that in such a way that the deaths do register it doesn't just feel it's not as you say Alex like like the towering inferno where you're like okay he has to die he has to die there's not like the sense of just the blockbuster ticking off the yeah I mean a lot of the deaths you know there are a lot of deaths and you know Fabrizio dies Tommy dies you know, Murdoch shoots himself. But there's not a... There is a lot of death, obviously, in the movie, in the premise, but the movie doesn't linger on the death unless it serves a narrative purpose until you kind of get to Jack, where you get the big moment, where he sort of encapsulates all of that death, all that pain, all that suffering that happened on that night. And I think that's something that, you know, you obviously see all of the tragedy, but the movie doesn't get sort of overly involved in that to the point where you end up um, almost off base. And again, that goes to the, the point of, you know, Cameron treating it with respect and knowing, like... It's just a bit gratuitous to show that sort of thing. Yeah, they kind of have to keep it moving. You've got the um, you've got the priest leading them in, mm. leading them in the prayer. Where, you know, as, as the ship is tilting up, you know. The, um... It's a highly emotional film as it sort of reaches its climax. And what I love, you know, knowing the Titanic very well, is the the attention to detail and getting the little things right. Like, you know, you have the ship, the wave coming over, and you've got light all on top of the upturned boat. There's a lot of stuff, and a lot of it was cut, but there's a lot of stuff in there that did really happen. There's a high attention to detail, and obviously that isn't something you going to necessarily notice on a first, second, third watch without knowing it, but the fact that there is so much happening around Jack and Rose that feels so real because it's based on like real accounts, I think goes a long way as well because it feels as close to what we can imagine the sinking of the ship feeling like. And the mm-hmm. supporting cast in those roles, you know, like Victor Garber, um, Bernard Hill, who was obviously having had a massive decade between that and the Lord of the Rings films. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he plays the captain. He, he? he plays yeah. the captain, and, uh, and Victor and, Garber plays uh, Mr. Andrews, who's the architect of the. Uh, yes, and you got you got Jonathan Hyde playing Ismay, who was the MD of White and Star. Who's the MD of White Star? Sorry, yeah, company, to yeah. um, to provide yeah. that. It is incredibly well cast, and it does. You know, I do find scenes of like you know uh, stuffy British men just like, quietly drinking whiskey as the world comes to an end, quite strangely moving. <laughs> I'm having incredibly strong feelings about mortality right now, but I dare not show them, otherwise I might crack. The the point about recognizability is a really mm. important one in the historical context, because yeah. They cast people who looked, you know, you can make Bernard Hill look like Smith, mm. uh, Ismay. These are characters who people know either from, you know, real history or from previous movies. And I feel like, you know, people know that Ismay is meant to be the villain and he has Ismay get in that boat and kind of run away because that's what's meant to happen. That's what's meant, you know, how Ismay is meant to act. But all the actors, especially um, Andrews, I think do such a fantastic job of giving like genuine humanity to the characters who are kind of so mythic in this in this story and could easily just be you know very broad. I think he gives a lot of 
real like interesting to their story because there is an acknowledgement in all of them that of what it is they're facing none of them are blind you know the, when um, Smith goes up to the bridge and kind of goes down with his ship and when you've got Andrews and he's you know having the moment in you know in with the, with the whiskey and with the clock and when you've got Ismay sailing off knowing that he's going to live but knowing that he's destroyed knowing that he will never recover from this and as you talk about casting you know Jonathan Hyde prior to that he's, he, he, that was very much his casting you know he's the dad in Jumanji he's also he's the game hunter in Jumanji he's the butler in Richie Rich the priest or the kind of expert in the mummy who is involved in like reading out the book of the dead he is the character who is the kind of upper middle class comic or villainous figure of like British repression and uh, obliviousness and bringing that to bear in Titanic while saying actually he can also transcend the archetype he can also give them these moments of real human vulnerability and awareness is but using people in the roles that you expect from them like Leo there's no way at the time of casting to know that Leo's career trajectory would, would be already be on that route and all where he'd end up. But you cast people in roles. There's so much of it in the 90s. You don't really get it as much anymore where people like, you know, you cast in the type to subvert the type. And I think there's a, there's a good yeah. dose of that in there. Yeah, Jonathan Hyde also has a good ad-lib, doesn't he? Because uh, with that line about Freud, uh, when Rose is talking <laughs> about Freud and obsessions with size when it's saying how big the ship is. And then he says, Freud, is he a passenger? Apparently that was an ad lib from it. I was like, well, that's one of the best lines. That was a was a line that I didn't remember, and it really, really made me laugh when I heard it yesterday. And the fact they let James James Cameron let them keep that in is an expression of well, also because of course he has such a reputation for being an exacting director. But there's a lot of things in here that were suggested by the cast, like the Kate Winslet line at the end when she says, "This is where we met as the boat goes up," and it's like, oh wow, because that just seems like such an obvious thing that you would say. But it's like, no, that was actually suggested on kind of on the day, I suppose, when they were like getting ready for it that's how you make a great film when everyone is like you're pulling together although of course she said that this was a very hard film to make and it would take a lot of money to get it back into James Cameron film so yeah Avatar Way of Water obviously <laughs> spent quite a lot of money on her but <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, like, I like the fact that it's Bill Paxton it's Bill Paxton mm, in, yes. in, in, in the present day sequences playing um, what, sorry, what's his name Brock Lovett Brock, Brock Lovett that's it what a great name <laughs> Brock Lovett Brock Lovett, Lovett. <laughs> and, and the fact under that, sea explorer Brock, Brock Lovett, Lovett. And that's almost parody, but it was. No, it, is, no, it absolutely <laughs> yeah. is. Again, it's another example of like, that. it's just, you, you want that sort of adventurous explorer who, you know, in another version of this movie, it's about him discovering all of that. And, and again, it works. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's not, and yeah, he's, he, he was great uh, in, in the movie, but it's, he gets like the proper emotional art. But at the end, when he's explaining, uh, you know, what it means, like he starts out just as like the introduction to the story mm. and then ends up being able to deliver the, the call. And I think it's, um, sorry, Rob, I think he actually opens in quite a knowing cynical way because of course there was a lot of cynicism around this movie but he is very very cynical at the beginning and then over the course of it at the end he is completely transformed and I think that's kind of what a lot of the audience was doing mm. as well and I think you need somebody you need an actor who can bring that kind of wry self-aware humour I've literally just rewatched um, Terminator and obviously he plays the punk in that mm-hmm. and obviously he's in um, True Lies which was Cameron's film just before this you know three years before the fact that he looked at you know the weedy sleazy car salesman from True Lies and went you know what? You are my framing mechanism for this film. This guy is really, really good in it. And you've got to wonder, like, if he was also potentially considered for the Ed Harris role in Abyss, because he does, he does have, yeah. like, he's got the, he's kind of James Cameron's everyman, who's not Leonardo DiCaprio, because in this, or Michael Bean, or Michael Bean, in that brilliant scene when she's telling the story, when like, yeah, the old Rose 
played by Gloria Stewart, is telling the story and it cuts to them all kind of like yeah, leaning in. That got such a big laugh every time I saw it at the cinema. It's like, yeah, this is a story we're being told and we're all really invested in it. If this movie was made today, just to that scene and that moment and the confidence of these framing device moments relative to the, the past, that'd be the first thing to go. Like if they were like feeling nervous about the movie, wanted to cut it down to us, they'd cut all of that and it'd be a period movie. It'd be very much more basic flow line, but you know, you'd lose so much, you'd lose a lot there. But just thinking of, you know, even when you hear about Netflix cutting down, Outlaw King and Bardo, you know, with that as well, like this is the sort of stuff that you struggle to get through nowadays and the confidence with which Cameron approaches it. And the way, as I said, you know, you, you point out, like they cut away from the main story to go, hey, you're enjoying this, aren't you? You're really engaged. He knows that he can win people over. He's got, I mean, he's, he's by all accounts and in interviews, very arrogant about his talents, but clearly has talent. So mm. it's, it's fair enough. And and the movie knows that it's hucking you in and it knows that you know, and it knows that you're a bit cynical about the whole idea. And, that's, and Gloria Stewart, who plays the present day Rose, twinkle in her eye. And that's the thing, as you say, there is the kind of the reenactment of how this Titanic down and down. There's this knowing, almost forensic quality to the present day stuff that really helps sell the sweeping, lavish, romantic aspect of the, of the historical because it needs that framework. They can't have the same tone. They do, there does need to be that differentiation. And when the ship you know, breaks in half and when you've got or the funnels collapsing, when you it works incredibly well because there is, and I don't think, I think, you know, when we talk about Cameron, we tend to talk about him as quite a technical filmmaker, as somebody who's more interested who's not necessarily engaged with the human emotion of it. And, but in this film, you buy into it and you have to because it's so crucial. I mean, Cameron's kind of said that almost every film he's ever made has been a love story and you can argue whether or not you believe that, whether or not you think he's been successful with that. I mean, having just watched Terminator, you know what? Yeah, great. Yeah. I, I, I'm not going to argue with that. But it's just weird with that that he's that he's a technical director and there's no emotion because it's like, well, that's not true. Any of his films, apart from True Lies, there's always been a huge sweep to all of his films in terms of the emotion. I mean, his films are very, very on the nose in terms of the emotion. He never forgets to put emotion in, and the characters are there as well. He is known for the technical leaps that he makes with his movies which I think is why he's often overlooked as a great storyteller. Just that thing when it flashes forwards halfway through the film and they're all listening to the story. I think it's during that scene as well, or, or it's around that, that the character who's not Brock Lovett, but, but the big guy with the beard, you would know his name. Yeah, that guy, he tells the story of why the ship couldn't turn in time. So when you're watching it hit the iceberg, you're completely aware of what's happening and why it's all happening because the rudder wasn't big enough, it was going too fast and all that. Again, just that, just to put that in so that you understand what's happening adds to the emotion of it well, as well. It's also worth remembering the Titanic didn't sink in a normal way. It, it, you know, it, there's the reason it didn't, like, it takes on water and then starts listing the wrong way and that's because of a whole issue with the coal inside it. But then going up in the air, that would that is abnormal. That Like, we imagine that as a classic ship sinking, but it should have capsized with, yeah. a, with a gash like that. And it was very specific things that led to it not going that way. And Cameron goes further, like, it would have been, uh, you know, sort of at most like 35 degrees when it was at its peak, uh, maybe 45 degrees. Okay. Whereas in Cameron's movie, it's 90. And like, explaining that at the start means that when it starts doing that you just go with it like you don't go I don't think this may, if, if that didn't if you didn't have that you'd have so many people you know um, Neil deGrasse Tyson and stuff going well actually that's not physically possible whereas the movie says this can happen so everyone just goes with it it's, it's very very smart storytelling Cameron is a very good like peacemaker when it comes to stories piecing things together um, and I think that's a really good example of it yeah and one thing there with the technical advances and the CGI extras 
is that you get it in that shot when it does that virtual helicopter shot over the Titanic. And you kind of look and can see, oh yeah, this is like a PS3 game. But at the time it was like, well, this is amazing because this would be a map shot, but we can travel through this and also the people in it are moving. And there was so much in the film where it's like, I know that's not real, but I haven't seen it before. And it's really, really quite amazing just to see the people moving on the deck of the ship. And now it looks really, really clunky, but then it didn't. I think the transitions between the past and the present day, like, you know, Jack Jack and Rose on, on the bow of the ship, and all of a sudden, you know, they fade away and the ship, you know, is underwater and it's all symbolical and crusted. And just that and a kind of a number of times going, you know, The eye. The the zoom out of her eye, she's been painted. And I think, you know, we're we're going back to the casting, like the way they make the two eras of Rose, you're like so certain they're the same character, even though they cannot play the character similarly because there's too much difference. No one is going to act the same when they're 17 and... 80 odd however however 100 oh oh, shit yeah of course yeah 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 of course yeah but that eye transition is just like a perfect encapsulation of that sorry back to you Rob and and obviously and you do have you do have the elements that is like more you've got the Boo Hiss film you've got Cow Hot Clay not even mentioned Billy Zane who is is brilliant in that that shows what a great film it is because you haven't mentioned Billy Zane Billy Zane was like that's another good thing about these films and Cameron does this a lot I mean Yes, Schwarzenegger's a huge star, but his films are not often star-driven. They're much more actor-driven. And this is a film where it's like, well, DiCaprio became a star because of this. Kate Winslet wasn't a star. In some ways, the biggest star in this film at the time was Kathy Baker. She won an Oscar for Misery and was like, you know... But, uh, it was the unsinkable Molly Brown. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's someone that I'm missing. Is there anyone else in this that would have been bigger than her in terms of... Anyway. No, no she, she, was, she was big. Wasn't she nominated for an Oscar for this? Did she not get nominated for this? Gloria Stewart was. No, maybe she wasn't, yeah. I think it's one of those times. (laughs) (laughs) But no, it's like, that's the thing, is that this film, it didn't have stars. And you can see why the studio wanted to put stars in, because it's like, well, we need a star. And it's like, but we have this guy here who's going to become a star because of this movie, and I understand his appeal, and yeah. And we have the ship, and this is not, as Alice says, this is not Towering Inferno. And we have the story as well. I mean, like, yeah, we have this, have some faith. And that thing about... Cameron and his arrogance. So another guest has also said that and has, and says that's the issue that he has with him is that he's just so arrogant. I mean, I don't tend to read a lot of interviews with him, but it must be a thing when you think, well, I made the biggest film of all time and everyone said it was going to be a flop and it was the biggest film of all time. And 12 years later, I kind of did it again. <laughs> so you're thinking, it must be hard not to have a big ego when you are that good at your job. Yeah, to be clear, I think I'd say it's arrogant and arrogance is not usually a positive trait. I don't begrudge Cameron being arrogant. Not not with his hit rate and not especially... I mean, also T2 was, you know, absolutely record smashing as well. Absolutely, um, yeah. Arrogance is something that you know, a lot of directors have because you need to have it to be able to do that and to do something the scale of Titanic without his arrogance, you wouldn't get Titanic. You need to have that ability to go, you know what, Waterworld didn't work and people blame it on the water. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do that, but with all the sensitivity concerns of Titanic thrown in. That is real belief in himself and I think you need that to get the movie the way it is. And, you know, I think what you said, Rob, about the, the Titanic being a main character, being a character, like, again, it's it's a real, like, belief in yourself to be able to do it. That's a great point about Waterworld. I've actually forgotten about that. Yeah, that we were two years from mm-hmm. one of the biggest flops, although it did actually make some money, but it didn't perform as well as they wanted, and it was just written off as a flop, and it was... James yeah, Cameron's Waterworld was the was the sort of vlog right, line yeah. that they play around with, yeah. That's right. I mean, you can... When you break down why Titanic was expected to fail, it makes so much sense. Like, you can see articles coming out about it now, especially if water and, and, the, and just the nature of the shoot and then the replica of the ship and all of that, it's, it's of course going to be well. And also, it feels kind of vain, like, going and filming 
having, you know, getting all that footage of the Titanic and using all of that. And obviously we now know how obsessed with deep sea diving he really is. Like it does feel vain. It does feel that way. So I can totally see why it would skew that way. Well, that was the thing as well in the making of it. So he's making it in Mexico in this huge tank and he's built a 775 foot replica of the Titanic, almost the size of the ship, but it's only half of it. And then he's going to flip it so that it will be like a mirror image. So they're having to make some of the costumes have to be created in reverse as well. All of this just sounded like madness at the time. But now it's like, well, there was, it was actually genius. As much as the CGI extras and all the breath coming out of the mouth, it was like someone who understood how the technology of film worked. So was he also like, we can't cast any extras who have moles? Because presumably, well, like, well, that would have been a consideration. It would have been like, no, you've got moles on your face. You need to go away. <laughs> so that's a really good point. But, yes, but, like, well, I, because sorry, uh, because Robert De Niro was offered a role in this film as the captain, but couldn't do it because he had, uh, I think it was gastroenteritis or something like that. It's good that he didn't do it because it has to be Bernard Hill. Yeah, one because he's a great actor. Two because he has the right accent. Three because he is a spitting image of the guy. You'd be <laughs> what you wouldn't be what, looking at Captain Smith. You'd be looking at Robert De Niro yeah. playing Captain Smith, and that mole would be moving around. The thing with all of the technology that you've described for this movie, like, you know, the the breath in, you know, using CGI breath, like, you know, Fincher does that for everything, you know, and the, the big CGI sets and, and half sets and CGI extensions, like, that's every blockbuster, like, it's all stuff, you, you see it with a lot of the game-changing movies of this era that, that really push forward, uh, Waterworld was a bit more old school, but like, Titanic, uh, The Phantom Menace, The Lord of the Rings, their technology is just the norm now. The things that Titanic was the controversial Matrix, for is, oh, Matrix, of course, yeah. You know, all the, the stuff that that's, that was controversial for and like, oh my God, it's going to fail. It's like, that's just normal. That's how everyone would do it. You know, CGI Southampton, like things, or, or you know, the ship when it's, when, it's, when it's docking and getting extra passengers on, all of that stuff, like pretty much every period film now just uses CGI. You know, Bridgerton, it's CGI London, Anola Holmes, and that stuff that, you know, it, it's quite cool to have a groundbreaking special effects movie that isn't, a high action thing it's not the T-1000 it's not the Na'vi it's it's real life and it's recreation it's using it for a different purpose and it now is and kind of away from your point but I think is still a very notable thing and I think it does require sort of mavericks to be able to push that point but the thing there as well is that it's like well this is just an extension of map paintings it would have been map paintings but now we do map paintings in a slightly different way but the Cameron does it's like well I want to tell this story but I need to be able to do this to do it oh. which is why he's always having to break new ground and apparently he just will drop a project if there's no way to do it it would be it would be fascinating to see some of the projects that he's dropped because he just couldn't do it well Avatar he didn't do for ages because of the timeline and to the topic of the map paintings if you want to see what this movie would look like with more old school tech A Night to Remember has all of that the only difference is that the ship doesn't split in that movie because at that time the idea that the ship split was like an absolutely controversial fringe theory. How dare you say such a thing? It was only when they found it, they were like, oh, it did split. But in that movie, one of the things that really stands out is the miniatures because you can create these incredible miniatures, but the water, the way that water reacts against the miniature is never going to be the same. It doesn't scale. And, And so you have to, you know, you either build it something that's that big and sink it for real, or you have to find, you know, you find alternatives. And I think that stuff with Way of Water, he's... You know, he didn't want to do the Aquaman style underwater stuff. He wanted to do it actually underwater to get the right refraction and the thing. We'll see if that's worth it in a couple of months. Also also with James Cameron, it's an obsession. He has to do it underwater. Can you imagine James Cameron like, I'm going to CGI the water. Everyone would be like, no, you're not. Are you though, Jim? Is that that a thing you're going to do? But, you know, it's like he understood what he needed to do to get Titanic to look right and to look real. And yeah, the, the people walking on the ship, the CGI extras, they definitely do look fake. It pulls me out every time. But... 
it looks really good and a lot of the reasons why things have aged is just technology has got better rather than it being like that's just a misjudged visual and also the thing there was that it was um virtual helicopter shot over the ship in broad daylight so it's like he's not making it easy for himself it's like no you need to see this in the daytime one because it's a great shot but two it's like well there can't be too many scenes in this film that are at night because the climax of this film takes place at night and we have to save night as much as possible it's rose when she tries to kill herself and then is the next thing the night of yeah. the ship oh. sinking oh, oh, no, uh, is it the dance it's the dance the dance the night, yes. the night of the dance but that's inside they, but that's yeah. inside they, yeah, they you were, don't see the sky there's a deleted scene with them after the dance so you know in the movie it cuts from the dance to I think having breakfast with Cal they have a scene where they go up and they, they dance and they look at the shooting stars uh, and mm. so when she sees a shooting star at the end it's a callback to an early scene and um, the Come Josephine song they sing for the first time there as well so there's a couple of you know setups in those scenes but I I wonder if that scene was because ultimately it doesn't add anything and yeah it, it puts them on on the deck at night when you want to avoid uh, yeah. as much and, as and, much and there's, there's some really neat setup payoff that you don't realise while you're watching it like the um, the spitting off the side of the boat which is just there to no, which is there in a really nice moment of itself and them having this kind of moment of wild abandon and which is also there to set up her spitting in Cal's face which was again apparently suggested by Winslet because I think it was scripted that she sticks him with a hairpin and then she said well shouldn't I just spit him in the face and it's like oh yeah because that's a callback to the and, and that explains you know that, that explains good setup is you don't realise it's setup until it pays off you just enjoy it for what it is and because it was written as its own thing you end up with both scenes are great and you don't need the other scene to go with it but together it creates a nice little micro arc for Rose yeah do definitely yeah Again, you know, David Warner as Spicer Lovejoy, who I completely forgot was in this film. Yeah, me too. It was so happy when it's like, oh yes, I forgot that David Warner's in this. I mean, he is the Terminator in this film. That bit when he's after Jack and Rose is like, okay, that was part of the fun of watching it for the first time was like, okay, this is very different, obviously. He's never done romance quite like this before, but there's a lot of James Cameron in this from The Terminator. You have The Abyss, obviously, and all these flooded sets with the actors clearly just being soaked. Well, industri- the industrial machine, you know, that's something that's in Terminator, that's in The Abyss, that's in mm. T2, that's in Aliens a lot. You know, yeah. all of the mechanisms of the ship moving, there's a lot more of that than you'd get from another director because he finds that fascinating and it, it it lends a real sense to it. But then also you get, you know, you get the chase scene in the, uh, in the boiler room, which is absolutely, you know, that's pure Terminator. And it's also about the, the machine that we don't know that's going to go wrong, but we should know it's going to go wrong. Because in Terminator, you know, the idea of the whole, you know, especially T2 with Sarah Connor trying to warn them about the, about, about the AI, about the Terminator, about this future, and the abyss, the idea that, you know, we shouldn't be down here, we need to go back up to the surface because the storm's about to hit. And then obviously you've got in this the idea, they keep referring to it as unsinkable, which feels like if you're referring to something as being unsinkable, you're already in a pretty bad position because that's a no-win situation. Either like, ships shouldn't sink. So if your ship doesn't sink, you're not proving anything. You're just proving that it's seaworthy. It's just setting up like... I think I think it was, there was a lot, there was a lot of, there was a lot, I mean, there were a lot of ship disasters. Yeah, and the point of this one was that this one was so big and so well built that it would be able to weather it. Whether yeah, they use right, the phrase right. unsinkable and, and how it was used and who used it is is really still debated, like the extent of that. But, you know, the movie leans into that because the dramatic irony is is delicious. And there is no doubt that there was hubris at play, whether Ismay was having him speed up or not. Like, it doesn't matter because there, that was present. I just feel yeah. like if I was getting on a plane that was described as uncrashable, I'd be worried. I'd be like, yeah, these aren't meant to crash. 
What are you saying about all your other planes? But what, what about what about if you were making blimps after the Hindenburg? Then you'd definitely uh, yeah, so do it. Yeah. And it's I think I think it's definitely it's speaking of it's speaking of the time where you know it was an entirely different way. And you know, being a captain or being you know um, first mate on a ship meant that you a first officer you really had to know your stuff. You had to be able to do everything. You know. All the men just immediately they know how to do the lifeboats, but they also can calculate from the stars where they are. There's so much. It's an entirely different and it's also world. One, yeah, that's right. And it's also one of those things where it's like, well, this was before air travel, so we'd only been a nautical species really in terms of, and it was always fraught. So, like, so for hundreds of years, people had said, yes, you send out um, a ship to the other side of the world, and a quarter of the crew are going to make it, or it's going to get shipwrecked. So the hubris of this was like, yeah, we have finally got to the point where we can build something that won't sink. Which also ties into Cameron's stuff about like, because he's always seen as such a technological director, but his films often have a fear of technology in them. And this is one of them. They're like, yeah, this is the technical marvel that fails immediately and becomes like a huge coffin for everyone. It's like, well, that's something that's been in his films before. It's also to, you know, to the 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 way that you describe Titanic, removing Jack and Rose, moving all of that. How would you describe it? There's a lot of ways to present that story. It can be one of you know pure destiny. You know this the ship that sinks on its maiden voyage. It can be one of pure tragedy. I saw. Uh, I went to a uh, museum when I was in Tennessee earlier this year. It was a Titanic Museum. It's shaped like the Titanic. And at the end of that, they say like, oh, you know, the Titanic was, you know, a story of, of real courage and bravery. That is, that's such an American read <laughs> of that story. It's made by, it was, the museum was made by the second guy, the guy who led the second expedition. So it's well predates the uh, the movie, but that read of it is so different. And I think Cameron hones in on the right version of that story, the one of hubris, the one of, yeah, pure tragedy without, you know, sort of getting in the way and like having the people who survived being heroic or, you know, anything like that without, you know, sugarcoating the men leaving their wives behind. And I think it's very interesting. There's so many ways to view that story and to present it. Why did it fail? And to get obsessed with the technical side of things, which when we describe Cameron in this technical way, surely he would have been most interested in long scenes explaining why, how could this small thing, small um, impact from the iceberg lead to such description? But he doesn't spend his time on that. It's much more about the, the humans, because like, he recognises what the emotion's going to be the, from there. There's literally yeah. kind of one scene where it's Matthew's explaining why the ship's going to sink, and he's like, you know, the fight, the fit compartment's mm. been breached. As soon as that happens, it's a mathematical certainty this ship will sink. And from that, you're into the final stretch of the film because all of a sudden it's like, okay, the ship is going to sink. We know historically the ship's going to sink, but scientifically, this guy's just said. And that's another thing the, the movie does very well from like a knowing perspective. Like the ship hit the iceberg at 11.40 and it sank at 20 past two. So it had, you know, not very long. And for a long time, for the first hour and a half of that time, people had no idea, didn't really know. Like you could tell there was a slight list, but it was so, un, you know, unremarkable. They struggled to get people into the boats. And then it accelerated very, very fast. And the movie's right not to like have like a ticking clock of like, oh, it's going to get bad soon. I think there's enough of that in just the drama. But it does a very good job of showing how sudden things go from, okay, oh, if you're really deep, then there's a lot of water to, oh, no, this is this is absolute hell. That's a very good um, representation of that. And again, it comes from small scenes that just mm. explain things. And then it's like, okay, enough of the science. Let's get back to the let's get back to the good stuff. And that's the thing, because the normalcy kind of is part is inherent to the dramatic irony of those scenes, where we know that these people are very shortly going to be up to their necks in absolutely freezing cold water. And the fact that like life is continuing, and then it also sets up the really the really moving scenes of like you know the woman and uh, two kids in the bedroom, and the, you know they're going to 
drown very shortly mm. and she's reading them the further fairy the arch fairy tale or the elderly couple on the bed the strausses the strausses yeah, yeah, right, yeah. They, are, they are they are very very famous victims of the, the disaster they were very very wealthy people uh, and that story is you know very well known and it's it's great that they get their little moment sort of honoring them in it and the well, her line though is because doesn't she say if you stay then i stay or something yeah. which is then lifted and Rose says that to Jack so they did film it it's in the deleted scenes they have a scene where they where she's like we've been together for you know 70 years and if you you know if you're staying I'm staying so you know I think they probably cut out that scene and they cut out a lot of like the Guggenheim stuff as well because it was like well let's just do it with this storyline yeah. and I think that I think that makes sense oh, it like, does yes yeah. so that's the thing in terms of the little vignettes as it's sinking and those shots they were the things that really really kind of like you know hushed the audience so Jeanette Goldstein, of course, is Vasquez from Aliens. When she tucks in her kids, knowing that they're not going to wake up. Just absolute hush in the audience. And that really, really chilling shot, and you have the band played on, and uh, but that really, really chilling shot of the woman in her nightgown, I think, in the flooded ballroom. Mm. Thinking about it, sends a shiver down That that sequence is is always the one that, that really hits. And it's sort of the condensing. You know, as I say, it doesn't spend a lot of time on the terror in like a microcosm. It it tries to, you know, sort of encapsulate. I think that sequence is where he does go in and and goes into like each of the individual stories that they're loosely set up. There's not a lot of these characters beforehand, but there's enough for you to have that that connection. Yeah, absolutely. And it almost feels like, I think this is the film that probably expresses it most literally the uh, the John Everett Millet painting of Ophelia in amid, amid the reeds like you would mm. imagine like that's going to be a really powerful image for Cameron so you mentioned that there were conspiracy theories around this so yes. what are some of the conspiracy theories okay um there's i mean there's loads of different ones um i'll tell you the most interesting one and then it ties into like the bigger stuff so the big one is that it wasn't the titanic <laughs> that sank uh, so the Titanic was one of three. Um, it was the Olympic class liner. There was the Olympic, the Titanic, and the Britannic. Originally called the Gigantic. They changed the name after the Titanic disaster because they're like, we can't just keep doing this. <laughs> uh, the Olympic went was out. It was on, on the sea before Titanic was finished and had an accident uh, with a naval ship. So they had to send it back to Belfast to be fixed up. The conspiracy theory hinges on the White Star Line being in money troubles and the insurance for the Olympic not fully covering the damage. And so they decided to do a rush job on the Titanic, get that back out as the Olympic, and then the Olympic, which was now called the Titanic, to fake the sinking so that they could then claim the insurance on the Titanic instead of the Olympic instead. Because they'd not insured it enough. (laughs) Uh, And then, like, the thing falls apart because eventually it gets to the point of, the plan has to have gone wrong because you'd killed too many people. And there's, that then ties into the Californian, which is something I will, I would love to talk about, which is the, the ship that they could see, uh, which is in um, A Night to Remember and is in a deleted scene from this, but ignored. Turning the radio off. Yeah, and, and that's, that's ignored entirely because it is just too complicated in the Jack and Rose story. And I think that's yeah. absolutely the right decision, as sad as... It is to see that story go. Uh, and then the theory is that they did that and they covered it up and claimed all the money. Um, it is it is a load of hokum. Weren't they different but, sized ships as well? Uh, no, the, the class was all the same. The Olympic, Titanic and Britannic all looked the same. Um, the Titanic obviously sank in 1912. Britannic sank in the Mediterranean in World War One, And the Olympic ah, just finished a service. The perfect crime. Yeah. The, the, well, no, the Olympic finished a service and then was just taken apart in the 30s. So is it one of those conspiracy theories that says... 
that no one died or that they no, that they, knowingly they, killed they, people. Well, that's where it gets like, it's it's like they, they fucked up. They were meant to do it and the California didn't get the signal so it all oh, just went right. wrong. Yeah, and then that yeah. ties into bigger conspiracy theories about this being related to like evil Illuminati kind of things and how Guggenheim, who was on the, on the ship and uh, there were a couple of other very famous rich people at the time wanting to do the sinking to kill them so that they could then go with like the World Bank and all of this stuff. So that's another prominent theory the olympic titanic switch is the most compelling because there's lots of like really crummy evidence of like all oh, these these photos they're different and all of that but it's all made all the funnier by the fact that because the titanic sank and the titanic was the second ship therefore a lot of the press coverage will have been of the first ship the olympic titanic sank there's not that many pictures and suddenly it sinks there's a lot of interest for pictures of the titanic there aren't any so they just use pictures of the Olympics because they look exactly the same. And so people are like, oh, no, it's that. It's that. Yeah, because they have no pictures of it. Like, again, to my first point, there's no, like, record of this. Like, there's so few pictures of the Titanic. Like, all these pictures of Smith on deck. Like, that's the Olympic because he was captain of that oh, before wow. Titanic. And so I think the whole relationship between the three... Sh- uh, sister ships is fascinating and something that isn't discussed a lot and de- isn't even mentioned I don't think in the movie and I think for, no. it, it's, it's way too much of a distraction but yeah. it's very fascinating but yeah but that is the tragedy isn't it that there was a ship that was so close by that turned off his radio and just had no idea that mm. this was happening and could have saved a lot of the people but it's, it's an extra vertex on the on the story that like, you can see why they yeah. don't include it. It's like there's whole debates over could they have got more lifeboats off? Like they were they were struggling to get the last lifeboats off as she was going under. If they had more lifeboats, would more people have survived? Like probably because you could have just like sailed them off. But not not everybody. No. Not everybody would have survived even if they'd had enough lifeboats. So it's you want to skip out on the stuff that's a little more involved. You want to go for the general stuff because that's the stuff that that sticks in the memory. That's the stuff that resonates with people. It's, it's not inaccurate to it to not include that stuff, but it's it's better to from a story standpoint and, you know, captivated me enough to learn all this stuff. That thing about the lifeboats, and about it having more lifeboats than it was required to have by law. That was because there was a minimum. So they had, um, I think it was based on tonnage up to a certain point, but the, it was like t- up to 12,000 12, tonnes, and these ships were like 48,000 tonnes. And so they had the absolute, they had more than the minimum but way less than their, you know, their requisite from by the number of people it carried. It yeah. was the idea of scale versus the number of people, and that's a that's a great little, like, you know, summation of the whole thing. The idea that the size was the bigger thing. They didn't really consider the people, the human cost. It was all about the industrial complex of bigger, bigger, bigger. Yeah. So the fact they're about half a number, yeah. the amount of people. But they've that great line. You know better than me with Billy Zane. They're actually got a gasp in the audience. It's like a proper film. Not the line. better half. Not the better uh, yes. half. Yes. Yeah. Half the people are going to die. Well, it's not the better half. Um, and, and that's a great setup payoff thing. You know, they're walking down the deck. Andrews is explaining it. Rose figures it out. They, they kind of brush it off. And then they use it to call back. And like, you, you remember what I told you about the boats. And yeah. no, they don't have to say it in, in such a way. And then obviously they have the, the line with, with Billy Zane. And again, a great example of, of using the character and using the actor to offset something that is is expositional but then again he shoots himself at the height of the Great Depression so. <laughs> yeah I actually forgot that that's why I forgot that yeah, yeah it's interesting that they, they have to yeah they give him the little little coda well also like they give him the coda she doesn't say what happens to her mum <laughs> No. Like, it's just like, yeah, he shot himself. Come to your mum. There was originally... Well, she became an actress, didn't... So, uh, Rose became an actress. She looked after her mum. It was fine. There's <laughs> there's definitely sort of a lot of stuff from after the sinking that they cut out, like scenes on the Carpathia and things. But by the time... once don't need, by the way. Once, once it's sunk... Once Jack's dead, yeah. you know, you do not want to delay getting to the payoff, which is that she always had him... 
weather. That weird line, I never told you, I never told your grandfather. Like, you, you probably probably could have. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 like, he would not have been jealous. I don't know. Also, right. like, the final scene of, like, you know, how you, you're presuming that Rose has just passed away and she's going down to the Titanic and, like, everyone who's died is, like, on one hand, they're applauding her. On the other hand, you think they might be a little bit annoyed because, like, we all fucking died. Also, like, what's happened to her husband? The one she spent all those decades with is, like, you've just thrown me off for that bloke that you've, like, it, like, <laughs> that you knew for four days. That you knew for it's four lost. days. <laughs> same, <laughs> same ending as lost. Um, <laughs> it's just, like, well, that's the movie, though, isn't it? I mean, it passes the fridge test. It, it passes Alfred Hitchcock's uh, fridge test of, like, you know, you know, do you think of it in the movie? Do you criticise the movie or do you think about it ages after? The emotion of that scene, the sort of delight of seeing that, the, yeah. the way the camera... Because that, you know, talk about technical prowess, goes from the Titanic into the CGI sets, into yeah. the grand staircase, and then it's POV, and then it removes from her to show the two of them. And that's, you know, that's great technical filmmaking, but with the eye of, like the thrill and then the emotional payoff of the of the kiss and just the final words of our husband going what the fuck <laughs> <laughs> but there is also like yeah the fridge test thing here that's there's a very very raiders of the lost ark thing here as well in terms of if rose had stayed in that lifeboat then jack could have gotten the board and he would have survived and they could have lived happily ever after yes uh the board is one of the most annoying things because i think everybody who makes that point about they both could have fit on hasn't seen the movie hasn't watched the movie in years because because they try and get on and um, Mythbusters did show that if they'd tied up their vests and put it underneath and created the buoyancy for sure I do not believe that a you know a, a street rat and uh, you know a pampered lady would have been able to figure that out in the freezing cold of the Atlantic absolutely, yeah, like anyway. no it's absolutely the right call um, yeah there, there is that there is that point and you know that is just the nature of of the story like she right. she wouldn't stay on the boat she wouldn't hedge her bets that way she would she would go to be with him she would rather stay with him she'd want to be with him and die than survive. And it's only after she knows he's dead and does it, you know, it's only when she realises and she lets go of him, um, physically, not not literally, that, that she goes and does it. So it's, it's one of those arguments that's like, well, yeah, but the story doesn't make sense without... And there's also one of those things there where it's like, well, if they both live, this doesn't become the biggest film of all time because there is something about a doomed romance that oh, yeah. just well, adds more if, money and more if zeros they, If they both office. live, this turns into The Graduate. Well, there's an idealism and, and Jack can live forever perfect in that in that way because yeah. she says it after they've had sex in the car but just as they distract the people so it's the perfect midpoint like I'm going to get off with you it's that moment of like yes everything is going great and it, it has to go wrong because there's no way that in practice they can get off the boat because afterwards they go and they go back to Cal because of the, the iceberg and there's all of there's no way it could actually work and I think you know again that's a fridge test thing you don't you just need to believe in the moment that it can work and that for that moment between when they when she says she's going to do it and then 40 seconds later when it hits the iceberg if you believe that they're going to be together then then it, it doesn't matter it like it would be impractical to imagine it but if indy but hadn't it, stopped the nazis getting the ark they would have taken it back to hitler <laughs> that's right so it's like it's, it's exactly that it's like well but this anyway yes that's not quite we are telling a story to wrap it up what I'll just say, are the I'll final say what, things say. that we need to say about Titanic and um, we have to give it over to you should, should have had the baker the baker in it he's a great character he's in it the guy who's at the top of the boat when they're there that is a real guy uh, he was a baker on the Titanic and when he found out that it was sinking he you know did a bit of his the work he was meant to do and then he was like right okay and just went and got drunk as he began to notice that the ship was was tilting a little bit more he was like alright well I might as well go and he just walked off at he says, as it just went under, just walked off, stepped off, head didn't get wet, and then just spent two hours in the Atlantic and then eventually got picked up by a lifeboat. <laughs> and the thing is, that the entire bit up until him going in the water could be bullshit. 
He was in the water a long time and he absolutely survived because he got drunk. So if you're ever like on a, on a, on a shipwreck like the Titanic, get drunk. That's the way you survive. <laughs> it's a okay. brilliant story. And that the issue with that is it works great in A Night to Remember. It works great in this context. To have that story running alongside the Rose and Jack stuff would be very, very silly. Yeah, would be like something out, out of a Roger Moore Bond film. The guy who's just continually but, drinking. But, but he is in the movie. He is yeah. he purposely put him there, and he's um, and he does drink, and he's at the top with drink, them, and yeah. he's got the flask, and mm-hmm. he just kind of just goes. Oh, it's it's a, a little a little wink and a nod, and there's a scene of him throwing deck chairs. Um, at least it's him throwing deck chairs out of the um of the side. And that's something that he did. And he was like, oh, people are going to have to have things to hand on, hang on to. Oh, wow, okay. Um, yeah. Um, I mean, again, it's, it's, just, it's so baked with all that information. I think we spent so much time talking about the filmmaking, the pre-release view. We didn't talk a lot about the post-release and kind of its, its cycle around from being the best thing ever to being terrible and now kind of like being rightfully well-respected. And you can talk about the Rose and the Jack, but as you get deeper into the movie and you see the technical side yes and then the attention to detail the historical care that's there that's something that I always really enjoy every time I see the movie I see something new I see a, a new reference a new detail or even something in the Rose and Jack story I'm like oh that's a that's an added layer to it which I just think is fascinating and actually that's a very very good point about the post-release uh, yeah this was number one in the US for 15 weeks and in this country I think it was it was a long time as well I just know um, what you said about the box office at the start Avatar was the same you know, big opening for a small movie, but nothing for the movie to scout and just kept going. It's the camera effect. And it's the word of mouth. It's, it's that. Anyway, so... Well, yeah, and that's it. Um, and it also, of course, won 11 Oscars and Ben-Hur was the first film to do that and Lord of the Rings, the third one, was, was the next one to do it and no film has done it since. So it was a huge success. So I, yeah, I was there when it came out and it was really good and it was, it, it was amazing and I bought the books and all that kind of stuff. But you came to it years later. Mm-hmm. Like, both of you... And you watched it on telly, so presumably you came to it knowing that it was this huge film, and that. So, what was it like the first time you saw it? I, I can't remember the first time I saw it because I will have seen it partway through on TV. Like I definitely didn't see the first hour or first, you know, forty fifty minutes until much later. But yeah, it had that reputation of just being a great movie. It was already well cemented by the time I saw it. Uh, I was telling you guys beforehand of see, watching it in a hotel room in New York um, in two thousand and five. So eight years after it came out and you know joining it halfway and sticking but sticking with it there's so many adverts adverts every 10 minutes adverts after the ship sank and just being still engaged with it so into all of it so it was you know it was a movie that was well regarded but a movie that really did like resonate and, and watching it on TV I just remember being drawn into it with adverts it must have been like I think we must have been we must have been watching it for the runtime, and we joined when the ship was starting to sink but it's, it, it was a movie that captivates. It, it immediately has that quality. Um, so I was always fascinated with it. And uh, eventually then, I think I think I had it on DVD was the first thing I got it on. And like watching it through, I'm like, oh, wow, there's, there's so much stuff that I've never seen because I've always watched it a bit on TV. But it, it definitely is a, is a fine movie to discover that way because, yeah, it's the big visual scale and the hype of the release. But, you know, it, it's hype well extended beyond that and then it definitely just you know sort of is captivating it was interesting because obviously by the time you get to there it definitely had more of a mixed reputation with you know people sort of like oh the love story is rubbish it's not it's not real and kind of doing it I don't know what your experience was like Rob you see I don't have any overriding memories of Titanic from a particularly young age you know there's something I probably came back to in my teens I definitely would have seen it probably in parts probably on TV um, when I was a bit younger 
and came back and I enjoyed it. I didn't love it. Like, you know, I think maybe I was a bit cynical about it, you know, as you, in terms of like, oh, the, 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 the sweeping romance of um, Jack and Rose. Yeah, so for, I think for me, my my one was was T two. I think my one was like I probably have the same relationship with T two that you have with Titanic, and saying that probably have the same relationship that that you have with Aliens or as being like a formative Cameron film. Yeah, yeah as being like the film that you, you know you didn't necessarily watch it. You might have caught it in like a on on again on TV or in whatever form without necessarily knowing exactly what it was you were watching, and then maybe gone back or maybe you did. Did you watch Aliens the first time, knowing that this is Aliens? This is what well, this is what it is. Yeah, because it took so long to get the video because the entire town had booked it out, and there was about three copies in my town. So it was one of those where all my friends had seen it, and then so it's like finally on Aliens. Watched it twice in one night, and then again the next day. So it was like Aliens I had to watch it. I had to watch it as many times as possible before you had to give it back. Yeah, I mean, I I, I, I had um, turned it to on VHS. So that was that was one of my things you know when you're a kid and you're like or, or, or you know DVD or VHS and like you're, you have a small collection of pool, small pool of movies that you're able to watch whenever you want me T2 was like that that was it <laughs> Alex thank you very much for joining us it's been absolutely wonderful um, if our listeners are looking for you online where can they find you um, they can find me on Twitter assuming Twitter is still around when this releases uh, AD- it's unsinkable <laughs> <laughs> Captain Musk um, <laughs> on Twitter AD Leadbeater L-E-A-D-B-E-A-T-E-R. I'm that on other social media, so if I get Hive or um, any of the other ones, I'll be that on there as well. Uh, you can also check out Screen Rant, Collider, and CBR for a lot of great movie coverage. We do quite a bit of Titanic coverage, which I've gradually pushed the sites <laughs> towards over the past few years. So uh, lots of good true story explorations there. Well, if you send us through your favourite link, we can put it into the show notes. So oh, that'd people, be great, yeah. yeah. Yeah, send us through some links for, uh, for Screen Rant, Collider, and the other one. <laughs> and, Comic uh, book resources. Comic book resources. Can't be anything about Titanic in there, can there? Uh, there might be. I mean, it covers a, it covers a wide range of, of shows. You'll have to interview me on all, on the differences between the sites another time. There's a lot of, lot of details there. Brilliant. Okay, cool. <laughs> well, Alex, thank you again very much for joining us. And um, would you care to take us out with a rousing rendition of uh, My Heart Will Go On? No. We <laughs> 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 didn't even talk about that, did we? Oh, no, we didn't. It's fine. Well, I mean, that, okay. isn't that a real testament to the movie that the thing that dominated its legacy for so long... We just didn't didn't need, didn't need to talk about it. The music, no. the music though, is incredible. Oh, that that yeah. um, mix of of sort of like the the Irish music and then sort of the more Protestant stuff is is phenomenal. Yeah, it is. Um, well, we could talk about this. More. Yeah, let's go. But um, yes, actually, that said though, I didn't mind the song when I watched it again yesterday. It's oh yeah, this has got the song at the end. That's fine. I mean, that's time has been okay to this. I song. mean, it's you know, it's not, it's no. Um, who's, well, who, is it Travis Scott at the end of Tenet? Like you know, you know, <laughs> oh, yeah. it's that like, like it's aged better than that. Um, yes. Yeah. But I think a lot of the the corniness of Titanic has aged into itself. So it's something that's big and brash. So when you see it initially, it's like wow, amazing. And then you know, after five years, maybe cynicism sets in. But now we are you know twenty five years on. All of the cynicism that can exist is just the earnest over-the-top stuff can just be taken as as that. Well, that's a nice place to end. Okay. The ship is going to suck us down. Take a deep breath when I say. Kick for the surface and keep kicking. Do not let go of my hand. Thank you, Rose. Trust me. I trust you. Ready? Ready? 
Nick Sully? I'd like to talk to you about a fresh start on a new world. You'd be making a difference. I became a Marine for the hardship. I told myself I can pass any test a man can pass. All I ever wanted was a single thing worth fighting for. Ladies and gentlemen, you are not in Kansas anymore. You are on Pandora. You should see your faces. We have an indigenous population called the Navi. They are very hard to kill. This is why we're here. Because this little gray rock sells for 20 million a kilo. Their village happens to be resting on the richest deposit, and they need to relocate. Those savages are threatening our whole operation. We're on the brink of war, and you're supposed to be finding a diplomatic solution. The concept is to drive these remotely controlled bodies called avatars. They're grown from human DNA, mixed with DNA of the natives. Marine in an avatar body. That's a potent mix. You get me what I need, I'll see to it. You get your legs back, your real legs. Hell yeah, sir. Looks like you. This is your avatar. Just relax and let your mind go blank. It shouldn't be hard for you. Side. I want you to gain their trust. You should not be here. Go back. All this is your fault. I need your help. We better stop him. They've sent us a message that they can take whatever they want. But we will send them a message that this, this is our land. Well, that was a good voyage to the Titanic, wasn't it? And now we're going into outer space for Avatar. And we have two wonderful guests to join us on this voyage. Regular listeners to the podcast will have heard them before. So welcome back, Mark and Elaine Gregerson of the Honeymoon Period podcast. Hello. Hello. We see you. Do you? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> well, thank you for coming on to talk about Avatar. Thank We're you. We're loving it. It's amazing. Thanks so much for having us back. 
So for the three people out there who haven't seen Avatar, we will give a quick plot synopsis. Mr. Wallace, would you like to do the honours from the IMDb? Sure. A paraplegic marine dispatched the moon Pandora on a unique mission becomes torn between following his orders and protecting the world he feels is his home. Yeah, pretty good. Yes, that is pretty much the plot of the film, but uh, to go into a little bit more detail. So this one stars Sam Worthington as Jake Sully, who is, as Rob said, a paraplegic marine who goes to the moon of Pandora, replacing his dead brother, who was a scientist. And the reason he's doing this is because he has the same DNA, which means that he can also inhabit an avatar of the indigenous alien race called the Na'vi. He can go into this avatar, this Na'vi avatar, and infiltrate their clan for various reasons. Some of them are quite good because a scientific group wants to understand more about them, but there's also an evil corporation who wants him to infiltrate them so he can get them to move and they can mine the land that the Na'vi live on. You know this, you've all seen the film. (laughs) So yes, this one came out in 2009, 12 years after Titanic. So James Cameron spent over a decade at the bottom of the sea, really, just having a look around. We all know that he loves the ocean, he loves diving, he loves going into his submarines, but was brought back to filmmaking because the technology for him to realise his vision had finally caught up with his script that he'd written. He actually wrote this script in the mid-90s. And I heard that he was, or I heard him in interviews say that it was between this and Battle Angel Alita, and he'd worked very hard on a script for that. And it was basically, they were going to do um, a technology test and they decided to go with Avatar and that's the one that he felt more drawn to. So yes, the film was released and very swiftly went on to become the biggest film of all time, supplanting Titanic, his previous film. He certainly can make an audience-pleasing movie. So that's a bit of background to Avatar. But more importantly, Mark and Elaine, what do you think of Avatar? I find it really interesting that you talk about it being a film that he would have um, put out in the 90s had the technology been there and something that he'd been working on from the 90s because it strikes me as a very 1990s film and perhaps that is why, despite all of the very problematic parts of the story, the problematic themes, some terrible acting um, and other things that I could go into. I absolutely love this film. I think it's transformative, immersive, absorbing. I cry every single time I watched it. I watched it a little bit again last night just to prep and I cried. Um, We've watched it about 20 minutes ago with some certain scenes that we wanted to look at again cried again I don't know what it is about this film I think it was such an experience I'd be really interested to hear what everyone you know when everyone else saw it and how many times I'm not someone who goes to see films over and over again but I went to see this film three four times because I just wanted to be back in Pandora and back in this world so for me lots of disclaimers around it but I absolutely love it very quickly Elaine What are the scenes that you cry at? Because, to be honest, I don't find this film particularly emotional. Not in the same way that I do Titanic, for example. It's really funny. I've been trying to work this out as well, because I thought the question might come up. 
the scenes around Awa, the spiritual scenes, and I'm not someone who has a particular religious affiliation. I'm an atheist. I, I don't think of myself as a particularly spiritual person either. But there is the themes around transformation and being one with all living things, the sense of community. So scenes where the forest is coming alive and we're learning about the animals and um, also scenes where um, we're trying to use Aware and the power of Aware to move uh, humans into the Na'vi avatars, those sorts of scenes. I think the power of the music, the power of the absorbing moments of the film really, really take me on a journey and it might just be Cameron's playing into like you know my my love of big things so big themes big you know moments big neon lights <laughs> and sensory overload that might just be that he's he's playing a trick on me but those are the things that really get me well I think he would completely agree with you in terms of he's not a subtle filmmaker no but I think he will go for the big emotion and he would say that's his job, right? Because he's making mainstream movies. Okay, Mark, what are your thoughts on this film? If you'd have asked me six months ago what my thoughts on this film were, I think I'd have been very, very negative on it. Because it's, in, I think in my mind and in a lot of people's minds, it's aged really, really badly. But then knowing that we were doing this, because this was arranged quite a while ago, I went and saw the re-release of this in IMAX 3D. Oh, wow. And for me, the last 40 minutes of this are comparable with any of the action scenes that James Cameron has done. Unfortunately, there's two hours before that that just doesn't puck on us with blue people is um, the best way I can describe it. And there's a lot, like you say, there's a lot of bad acting. There's a lot of the exposition in the first 10 minutes of this is just... When Giovanni Rubisi picks up a piece of... um, Unobtainium, and let's you know, let's go into the just the whole concept of unobtainium for a, 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 later, a later time. But <laughs> dude, he says this is why we're here, unobtainium, because this little grey rock sells for twenty million. Sigourney Weaver's a scientist. I think she understands why we're here. Oil, and then, uh, oh, what was? Sorry, that was me saying oil in a weird voice. Oh yeah, uh-huh. that was yeah, me. Sorry. <laughs> sorry, that was me. <laughs> it came through even weirder than he thought, Rob. <laughs> I'm obscurely drawing out the Iraq comparison, given the time frame this film was made in, and not to skip immediately to any spoilers, but the uh, the scene in which the uh, where the the home tree is destroyed, apparently James Cameron was called out like, you know that that looks quite a lot like you know nine eleven, and he's like, yeah, I was surprised at how much it looked like nine eleven. You made the film; that was a choice. <laughs> the beginning's got a narration and then goes into a plot device where Jacob Sully has to... Sorry, I have to remember his name because um, characters are so well created. Jake Sully. Yeah. <laughs> it has to do a video blog just to... Um, just for reasons that... Oh, just to keep yourself sane and also to say your thoughts throughout, out loud so that the... Because um, we can't do anything in subtext. Yeah, I mean, that's... Oof, I don't even need to be here because, Mark, you're just saying everything for me. This is great. <laughs> I think the exact same thing, to be honest. The last 40 minutes, oh my God. And I saw this in 3D IMAX when it came out. And it was one of those that, it was good seats, it was 3D, it was 60 foot IMAX, it was the BFI one at Waterloo. So you couldn't get a better presentation. 
until actually the film broke down an hour in when they're climbing up to that mountain to go and get their dragon or whatever they're called. I'm sure Elaine knows the name of the species of uh, flying dragon thing. It's Ikran. <laughs> I knew you would. You never let me down. So they're going up to get their Ikran. I don't know how you pluralise that. And the film just went... And someone came out and said, oh, sorry, the file's corrupted. We're going to turn it off and on again and see if that works. <laughs> the file's corrupted. <laughs> just... I use that a lot of work as well, yeah. It's... yeah. 20 minutes later, the film came back on. And we were all thinking, oh, I'm going to miss my last train now. But actually didn't. And it was a Christmas miracle because it was at Christmas time. But it took a while to get back into the film. But as soon as they were on the dragon's e-cram and flying around, it was actually, this is, this is great. But... Even on that first viewing, it's like, I am very aware that this film is quite long and they've been sitting around that tree for quite a long time now. And I don't think I should be feeling this on a first viewing. I shouldn't be feeling restless. And without wanting to sound, uh, I don't know, like a Philistine or something, I came to watch a film to see shit blow up in 3D. So could you blow some shit up in 3D, please? (laughs) And then when it started doing that, it was like, this is great. (laughs) He can do action scenes so well. And then I tried to watch it on telly and just could not. I did watch it again for this. And I started off watching it. So Rob knows that I've got a Fold 4 phone, one of those phones that folds out, which is just great. And it turns into a mini tablet. And I started watching Avatar on that, the way that James Cameron always intended it to be seen on a seven-inch screen. (laughs) And it actually looked quite good. And the sets with the humans in, uh, yeah, the live-action sets looked a lot less cheap than they do when you watch it on a bigger screen. Um, so I watched the first hour of it on that and then thought, actually, I might watch the rest of it on the telly. We'll get into it later, but it's a film that I can never suspend my disbelief because when it looks amazing, it looks so amazing that you are completely aware that this isn't real. And then when it doesn't look amazing, it looks so artificial that you are taken out of it because you know this isn't real. It's just the weirdest film, I think. But Rob, what was your first viewing? And then we'll get on to some more of what we like and what we don't. Yeah, I mean, I would have seen this the year that it came out. I think I would still have been in Dubai at the time. I think I had, like, a pretty good first experience. It wasn't a film that anyway stuck with me. I think I found it fairly visually spectacular in places. The plot was a bit of fluff. James Cameron's plotting has always been so tight in all his other films. I mean, even, like, even in a longer film, even in something like Titanic... There's nothing particularly wishy-washy about it. And I think I think maybe it's partly kind of trying to deal with the more mystical aspects. You know, even though they are given a basis in science fiction, do feel they are they are, you know, they're very Gaia, they're very in, you know, touch with the world and touch with nature. That just I get what he's doing, but it this is one of the few James Cameron films where visuals aside, it feels like someone else could have done it. I walked out of it going, you know, James Cameron, like technologically brilliant, you know, what he's done there with CG and with world building is great. But I think the script maybe could done with another draft. As Mark said, there's so much setup. And you've got the like little like dandelion jellyfish things that are like, you know, midi-chlorians and they tell you that he's the chosen white guy and that he's going to lead them all. And then there's the thing and, you know, the flying animals and the plugging in and it yeah it's just like on one hand it's like these are all really cool concepts and maybe i'm just maybe for whatever reason like i for whatever reason it didn't vibe with me i say because i'm not i'm not the biggest fan of i like pocahontas not the biggest fan of um dances with wolves i've got a certain soft spot for fern gully but it's the first time that even you know even counting titanic 
where I didn't feel like James Cameron, like the the story that he was telling or the film as a whole was somehow sui generis. So it was in some way like revolutionary. Again, I can appreciate the technology and I can appreciate the, the technical filmmaking, but this wasn't in terms of the overall product, a revolutionary bit of filmmaking. See, I feel really, really bad now because a lady loves this film so much and she's got three people <laughs> kind of crapping on it. <laughs> holding it in. Because you are the first person, Lane, that I know who saw this, who paid to see this more than once yeah. at the cinema. And I've always said, I don't know how it's the biggest film of all time because that means that people would have had to go on to see it multiple times, not just in China where they were told to go and see it. <laughs> <laughs> it's you. Yeah, I know. Sorry about that. And that's... The reason why people said that they were going back to watch it again and again was to go back to Pandora. Mm. And yeah, was it? So is it just the look and the immersive 3D of the film that took you back to the cinema over and over again to watch it? I mean, it has to be because it can't be the storytelling, can it? So I love Dances with Wolves. And again, massive problematic white saviour complex part of that film. You know, you've got um, your man coming in and, and saving everyone. And yes, okay, he's... He's learning the way of the indigenous people and he's learning about culture and he's respecting who, you know, and there's a little respect and all of that going on. But the storytelling in both Dance with Wolves and Avatar leaves a lot to be desired. And I totally get what you all saying about the setup as well. That beginning, you know, it is incredibly... Uh, although you jump right in, you know, you jump into the, this idea of the avatars, you jump right into the Na'vi, and, but there is a lot of really dodgy dialogue. Um, Rob, what you were saying about, you know, it needed another uh, another few rounds on the script. I totally agree with that and certainly more so when I've watched it recently. So it has to be that immersive aspect that drew me back to the cinema because it can't be that I was sitting there thinking, wow, what a, what amazing story. I've never seen this before. Or I don't know where it's all going or there's these twists and turns that I can't see coming because I clearly can. I know what's going to happen with it. So yes, it, it, it is that. And you know what? I sat and I wrote... I, jotted some notes down in prep for this and one of the things that is right in the middle of my notes is that there's a line saying I want to go back <laughs> just like let me go back there's a, there's a part in the film where Jake comes out of his avatar and he goes back into quote unquote the real world and I feel that you know he's, he's he's wanting to get back in there he's not eating properly or he's eating really quickly and he's wanting to get back into the avatar and I feel like that as an audience member. I want to get back into that world. I want to go into the the neon and the glowing and the forest and flying through the air and that sense of freedom. Mm-hmm. I think that really, really appeals to me. So it has to be that immersive aspect of it. Yeah, I also, I think one of the things that also hasn't aged particularly well is that you probably wouldn't use a lead character who's in a wheelchair, firstly played by uh, an undisabled actor, but also certainly in order to, uh, secondly, in order to heighten the fact that like, oh, he's in, he's in a wheelchair when he's in his mm. own body, but look how free he is, is, is as one of the Navi and what a point of contrast. Yes. I don't think you'd really do that nowadays. Yeah, we were just discussing this. Um, we have a child who is a wheelchair user and we were just saying that, um, shame on us, a few years ago, if we had watched this, 
that aspect of the film wouldn't have even registered with us you know we said really honestly we probably didn't even I didn't think about it at the time and maybe a couple of years ago I probably wouldn't have done either but we were saying when we when we, when we watched it the first thing that came up for us was the fact that oh Jake is a wheelchair user oh okay he's been in some sort of incident he's an ex-marine he's now a wheelchair user and not only are they positioning his life as a wheelchair user as something that's very negative and something that he's not happy about and other people aren't happy. And the, the film positions it as this, almost like this terrible thing. There's all these lines about, oh, we'll get you your legs back. And all of this sort of thing. Like his, his life can't be complete until he has his legs. And then there are a number of quotes in the film that, again, Mark actually wrote them down for us. Yeah, um, so, yeah. I mean, it's used to explain that other marines are dickheads i think is the best Mm. term but yeah terms like lookout hot rod and meals on wheels i don't think necessarily would be used nowadays Mm. and there was a line about him being they shout like special case or something like that now we don't use nowadays uh, the word special in relation to disabled people that can be something that's really quite offensive so my problem is that i'm when I watched the film, I wasn't entirely sure that the film uh, might be just completely misreading Cameron here and his intentions, and I, I hope I am. But I just got the position that it was the film sort of shouting those things, not just the Marines. There wasn't a counterpoint. It was just thing, offensive things being shouted and everyone almost like the film agreeing, oh, yeah, right, okay, and, and nothing to take us away from that. And also positioning, you know, Jake's life as being not something that was a positive thing. And that was very much linked to his experience as a wheelchair user. You know, it's weird, isn't it? I, I didn't even remember that aspect of the film. But now it's really stayed with us, both as people who have experience of that world. Yeah, it's, it is surprising how long ago 13 years can be. Mm. There's that aspect of it. I mean, I kind of gave the film the benefit of the doubt in terms of all the derogatory things were being said, I thought, were just to characterise the Marines as the bad guys. Because the scientists led by Sigourney Weaver never really used that language unless I'm misremembering it. But yeah, but it is one of those things where, yeah, 13 years turns out to be quite a long time. And the white saviour thing, that's the thing that I think shows, yeah, this was written when Dances with Wolves was recent memory, wasn't it? And it doesn't appear to have been changed very much since because it's that thing about you have the outsider who goes in and it comes from a time when every man was seen as a man and also a white man and they've stuck with that. And it does lean into the noble savage stereotype of the indigenous races and also the thing that was also done in films like The Last Samurai. You get the outsider goes in, learns the culture and then becomes the best example of it. Yes. Yeah. And it's like, in about three months, you did that? <laughs> it's an interesting one, because I actually liked the rewatch more than I thought I would, and I found the film much more watchable than I thought I would. I think it helped just watching it not all in one go. But yeah, the kind of homogenous, noble savage, There are, there's not a lot of differentiation between the characters apart from Neytiri, the Zoe Saldana character that Jake ends up hooking up with and you get the impression that she is the best woman there. Yeah, the rest of them is like, well, there's just no shading to any of these characters. And yeah, he does turn out to be the best of them. And Sam Worthington's, out of all the people to be the best of them, 
bless him, Sam Worthington's probably not quite right for the <laughs> for that. He's so he's so bland, and also he keeps forgetting that he's meant to be American. Yeah, when you say the acting, I presume that you mean Sam as well as other people, but Sam in <laughs> particular is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I, th- I think personally, I think Zoe Saldana is amazing, just brilliant, and really carries the film for me and. She really fills the performance with so much anger and frustration and empathy and just loads and loads of shade in her performance. But Sam Worthington, I I laugh quite a lot, <laughs> not in a mean way, but there's certain points of the film as well. I think he might have done sort of reshoots of his hair, looks like he's got a little wig on um, or it's it's been dyed. <laughs> when he does the um, the voiceovers, he's Australian for most of it um, and then not for others. And I, I think he's most interesting when he's playing up against people like Zoe Saldana, Westerdy, CCH Pounder, you know, those great actors sort of elevate him I think when he's and it's a Gorney Weaver but I do find it really funny my other point that I've got written down is he seems to forget about the death of his identical twin brother pretty quickly as well which is you know there's this major thing (laughs) it's like major isn't it like this is Um, they weren't close (laughs) and no one else mentions it he will be in grief you know his his brother's like he's been murdered he's an identical twin and, and he's been murdered and he, the only reason he's there is because they share the same gene and they're genetically identical. And yet, apart from Sigourney Weaver sort of going, oh, I wish your brother was here, he's got a PhD. <laughs> and him going, well, he can't be here, he's dead and I'm here. That's kind of it. Yeah. I really would have loved to have seen, and maybe this is where the, you know, the, the storytelling really lets itself down, but love to see reflections of that in the fact that he's in his identical twin brother's avatar. You know, there's so much you can play off with that. And the fact that he wasn't meant to be there and, and this, this you know, someone who looks just like him is missing. If I but didn't know gone. better, it would on, it would almost be like they put that in to make him like a bit of a fish out of water and then forgot <laughs> about it as soon as he, as soon after the first act. Yes. <laughs> that's it, isn't it? Because everything you've said, Elaine, is like, yeah, that's a much more interesting film. And I think it's one of those things where the businessman, James Cameron, would say... Yeah, that wouldn't have been the biggest film of all time, though, because it would have been too demanding on the audience, would have taken away from this immersive experience I want to give. But I would have found it a much more interesting film. Because, yeah, it raises... I mean, that's a fascinating thing that it raises, purely to get him into space, and then just forgets it. In a way, that's bold writing to do that, to just say, that doesn't matter, I'm just going to ignore that now. It's like, wow, okay. An interesting thing off the back of the, well, what you could say is the white saviour criticism of the film is that a lot of indigenous peoples after the film went to James Cameron and said, we're living what your film is about because they were in tribes that were suffering from globalisation. They were being displaced. And he's become a bit of an activist now for the preservation of culture, for cultures that aren't first world cultures. He's also obviously really into climate activism. So there is this thing that even though it's a genuine criticism of the film and a valid criticism of the film, it's had a good real world effect in terms of of the message. And actually, I think a lot of people coming to him saying, "Okay, you're going to put your money where your mouth is. And he has. I think he also invests in sustainable businesses and owns those now. So 
Yeah, it's an interesting one, that, because it's like it's undoubtedly a criticism of the film of, I'd say, how tinnied it is. And you write about Zoe Saldana, she elevates that character because that character is not particularly well-written, but it's all in her performance. And I was watching this film thinking, this lives when you are just watching the world breathe. As soon as anyone opens their mouth, it's like all the air being let out of a balloon. And I think this would work better if it was a silent film. It certainly has the emotional simplicity of a movie that was made a hundred years ago. So, yeah, what do we think about that in terms of the the spectacle of the film versus the rather prosaic plot? Obviously, this was used as one of the flagpole 3D presentations. And what it seems to do differently to every other shitty 3D film that came out along the same time is... The 3D takes you back into the world rather than doing... I, I wish it was a better term for, like, when you see a film from 2011 that was released in 3D, not even shot in it sometimes, and you see glass flying out of the screen. And um, if, if I had a bigger influence on the movie world, I'd probably try and get paddleboarding in as that from the... Cause the, I think the worst example of that is House of Wax, the original one, where you get the guy coming out with a paddle ball just to show just how great 3D is in that. <laughs> but this doesn't really seem to do that, and it's, the 3D does work in this. I think that's the, the reason why it's so beloved by people. That, and I think it's beloved by people... I think if you still speak to people now who aren't going to movies 12 times a year or anything like that, because a lot of them won't see it by the fact it did $3 billion worldwide, they still speak really warmly of it. Um, and it's people who are sort of more into movies, typically the people, <laughs> three quarters of the people who are on this podcast, um, who are a bit cold on it. And I think the reason is that this was unlike anything you'd seen before, because it did, the 3D does draw you into that world. And it's down to James Cameron's director, director and vision to use the 3D technology to draw you in in that way and put it in the hands of plenty of other hacks who had to go after that. And it's, yeah, let's have some water dripping out towards the screen that will justify the extra two quid that you paid for uh, to come and see this. Yes, it was one of those that when I saw it in IMAX 3D, there were moments when I was absolutely awestruck. That moment when Jake gets his ikran, is that right, Elaine? Yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and starts flying around and at one point is dive bombing down um, a cliff face. I was exhilarated by that. My heart was racing. It was like, this is astonishing what I'm watching right now. So 40% of this was live action and 60% of it is motion capture. Um, sorry, performance capture animation. What do we think of the way that the film marries the two of those? Can you suspend your disbelief? For me, I think the Navi look great. I think the avatars, when they kind of give them that half look of the guy who plays Norm, whose name I forget, Joel David Moore, and half looks like Sigourney Weaver, I think they look like a PS2 adaptation of a video game uh, from like the early 2000s, where the, 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 the main character looks a bit like the main actor, but not 100%, and that takes me out of the film. Yeah, I agree. But Elaine, this was obviously one thing that you could suspend your disbelief when you went to watch it but uh with any moments where you thought okay the live action and the pandora outside world are not gelling as well as i thought or or was it all good no i you know i I just didn't have it i think i was i was so taken by the whole thing and and as soon as i started this film 
playing again recently I was just in it I was just I was back in there and I get Mark's point about so when you're seeing like Sigourney Weaver as well and you're seeing you can see it's her face as a as a Na'vi you know that sort of mixed together but my brain takes me back to the fact that they said well it's half um the human DNA and um, it might not even be half but it's it's human DNA mixed with Na'vi DNA and therefore there is that element of otherness within the construction of the avatar so I can completely suspend my disbelief. Uh, but I do get what Mark's saying because you don't really think about that with Zoe Saldana's uh, Natiri or Westudy's character. You know, I, you just don't get that. Or Sute. Maybe that is to, for, for us as an audience, maybe that is for us to realise that these people are indigenous characters and these are people who are interlopers. They've, they've created it. I mean, when you think about it, it's really quite... There's a lot that you could talk about in terms of we've come to someone's place where they, where they live, where they've always been, where their culture and all their history is. And rather than just coming in as who we are and sort of learning, we're going to create these beings that look a bit like them, but also have our DNA. And I've used the word problematic quite a few times, but there's something about that that just doesn't quite sit right my other my other thing was is what happens to these does anyone know and anyone on this podcast give me this answer what's the game with the avatar so they're growing these avatars you know there's norm and sam worthington jake sully says oh they got big on the flight over there they've been in cryo for years and so they're obviously growing them but like are they conscious are they taking away their conscious are they enslaved in some way these avatars does anyone know what we're meant to think i think you're led to believe that they're kind of blank slates right Mm. because otherwise you've got a whole other moral question the film isn't really equipped to deal with that's what I'm thinking. And it really struck me. I don't know whether this time round I've just got a lot more life experience, sort of having 10 years having passed, that that really, and maybe it was because they're floating around like babies in the womb. And that really struck me, that image of of them being attached to some sort of like umbilical cord. And I was, I was thinking of, you know, what about these these avatars? And, and yeah, you're right, Rob, that moral question was coming up, but you're right, film doesn't ask the question. <laughs> But they've been growing them while they've been travelling, which is six years. Mm -hmm. But then it seems like this has been going on before because they ask Jake, Sully, if he'd been on an avatar before. And so Norm clearly has, but Mm -hmm. they've grown this little Norm avatar while they've been going. That's because I think it was meant to be a simulation of having been in an avatar. Ah, right. Okay. That makes Mm -hmm. more sense. Yeah. Like essentially, have have you done the training for it? Ah, so one that one things I've, I do find interesting about the film is when it's viewed in parallel with aliens, insofar as obviously in aliens it's the uh, it's the alien that's the enemy and it's the marines who are the heroes, and that's inverted here even to the extent of uh, them flipping the final battle from aliens between Ridley and the power loader against the alien, and here obviously you've got Quadrich in the equivalent machine versus uh, Sully and Natiri. Yeah. We haven't spoken about Stephen Lang yet, so I'm really pleased that Rob's brought him up. What's his name? Is it? We were trying to work this out. We called him Quidditch last night. Quadrich. 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 Yeah. Quaritch. Miles Quaritch. So I'm just going to call him Stephen Lang. Yeah. (laughs) He's a good baddie, isn't he? Like of of all the baddies, he's a good baddie. I really enjoy his performance. I mean, you're left in no doubt that he's the wrong one. 
and he seems to be really enjoying it as well. I think he's absolutely perfect. And in a way that Giovanni Ribisi, to me, is absolutely the worst possible pick you could make as a dickhead executive. I like him. He will always be Phoebe's brother to me and Phoebe's wasted brother. Oh. And I don't understand how, he's, how he got this job because it wasn't like he was a hot actor at the time. He's just... Oh, but he's really unusual. I really like the fact that he's just a little bit off-centre and he's playing golf and in the middle of this, you know, multi-million pound there and he's trying to get this unobtainium and he's saying weird... I really like him because he's not your standard bad guy executive. I like um, Dilip Brow, obviously, as uh, as Dr Max Patel, given mm. that the year after this, he was in Inception as Yusuf. Yes. Yes. Yes, I knew, I knew him from somewhere, but yeah, you're, yeah, that's it. He had like it. two big years for playing unconventional scientists. Mm-hmm. The, he's back for the sequels. I like Giovanni Ribisi for those reasons you've just said, Elaine. It's like, I also think he does give a pretty credible performance when he starts to see the cost of his decisions and what the company's doing when they start to really bring war against the indigenous races. You can see there's some kind of quandary going on there. And it is interesting that this film that was a huge, huge budgeted film, I think it's about $280 million was the budget, hasn't got a star in it. There's no one in this film that can open up a movie. Sam Worthington was an unknown who apparently was living in his car when he won the lottery to be in this film. Can't imagine that the audition tape was the best one, but anyway. Did he get the Terminator role on the back of this? Yeah, yeah, he was. it was uh, decided after this that he was going to be the next big movie star. So he got Clash of the Titans and he was in the Terminator film until people kind of said, actually, we don't want him to be a movie star. Thank you. Could you stop doing that now? Thing is, he's in a film called Rogue, which is a crocodile film, a giant crocodile film made in, I think, 2007, 8, something like that. It's, it's an Aussie film. He's really good in it and he's really, really charismatic. And it's like... So you can do it then. Why didn't you do it for Avatar? Were you just told not to do it? Were you told to be a blank slate that the audience could just project themselves onto? Yeah. He's in a TV show called Under the Banner of Heaven and he's excellent in that. He's obviously older. He plays, uh, you know, he's got a big beard in it. He looks very different to sort of the action hero Sam Worthington. I, when I first saw he was in it, I was like, I, can't, I don't really understand because Andrew Garfield's in it. Some other big name actors are in it who are lauded and celebrated for their acting. And I thought, oh, Sam Worthington, that's an interesting choice. He's very good in it and really redeemed himself in, in my eyes watching that. All right, that's the Mormon one, is it? It is, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I need to watch that. Mm, it's excellent. But yeah, Stephen Lang is the... James Cameron can always do a good villain. Yeah. Mm. He should really write a Marvel film and give them a good villain. But <laughs> yeah, so. yeah. But Stephen Lang, that moment when he holds his breath to go outside to continue shooting at them when all the good guys are trying to get away and escape after they've all been arrested and stuff. And he's holding his breath and firing at them. And then someone comes out and gives him an oxygen mask. When I first saw that at the cinema, someone applauded that moment. And it was like, "Mm, combat 18's in tonight then. (laughs) (laughs) I always always like the part that I keep on referring to it as the power loader. I don't like the mech. When he gets into yeah. that and he's on fire. Yes. Yes, yes he's on fire. Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he just puts himself out. Also, that amazing shot when he jumps out of the big bomber and then lands and then the bomber crashes right behind him and he doesn't even flinch. And it's like, this is ace, right? I mean, this is the kind of stuff I've been waiting for. And uh, just a very random shout out to uh, the 1985 CBS uh, Death of a Salesman 
with uh, Dustin Hoffman in the lead because Stephen Lang plays Happy in that, who's the younger son, the slightly oblivious kind of, again, happy-go-lucky younger son with him and John Malkovich playing Biff. And I've, I literally, I've only just remembered, having just seen his filmography, that he's in that. He's really good in that, and it's such an anti-Quaritch performance. It's obviously much earlier. That just seeing that made me go, wow, of course he was in that. Surprisingly versatile actor who, I guess, in later years, because of his stature and because of his stern look, has kind of become the old man from um, Don't Breathe. You know, that's the kind of his casting now. Yeah, it's interesting because he obviously is Freddie Lowndes from Manhunter, the sleazy reporter. Yes. He's also in Last Exit to Brooklyn. He plays a union leader who's bringing all these dock workers, I think they are, out on strike. But he's also a closeted homosexual. And it's a film set during the 50s, so obviously he's having to hide that and be very, very careful about it. So I always saw him as quite a sensitive actor, and then suddenly he's the bad guy in Avatar. He's really, really pumped up, and just gives this fantastic boo-hiss performance. And it's like, oh, I just think you haven't been utilised enough in big movies. And you said that he's coming back for the sequel, Rob, even though he kind of meets an end. He apparently is. It seems like they've got everyone back for the sequels. Cause yeah, because Sigourney Weaver's coming it. back. And, uh, oh, right, okay. It's just like the end scene from um, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, where they're like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, why don't we like... just bring everyone back? <laughs> <laughs> Apparently Sigourney Weaver plays a little girl, so that's going to be interesting. Yes. Um, yeah. If it goes orphan, then that's going to be amazing. But, uh, yeah, it's one of those things where they've de-aged her and done an orphan thing. But, um, yeah, we'll see. You love that film, don't you, Rob? I just love the orphan <laughs> film so much. <laughs> anyway, I was watching the film. And I said, the things that are amazing completely bounced me out because it looked so amazing and I knew it wasn't real. The things that looked artificial just bounced me out because it didn't look real. But some of this does look absolutely astonishing. And it seems to be that the one shots or the two shots are the shots that they spent the most money on for the first two hours of the film, and then spent a huge amount of money for the action at the end. But there are shots of Zoe Saldana that are just absolutely incredible that it's not real. Like, there's a bit at the end when she's hiding behind a tree when all the soldiers are firing, and she looks around, and it's like a medium-wide shot, and it's like, oh, that just looks photorealistic. It's so amazing. So it'll be interesting to see how more advanced the effects look in the sequel. Have you seen the preview on IMAX and, like, in 3D for the... New Shape of Water, is it? or Way of the way, Water. Way, way of Water, yeah. The Way of Water, yeah. I didn't know that there was a prequel, um, that there was like a sizzle or something. It was a closing credit sequence on the re-release. Oh, did it look good? It looked, yeah, I mean, it looked amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Shock horror, uh, James Cameron pulls it off. Um, yeah. And he's back to his favourite of the water. He loves the water. Yes. Yeah. I take it that we're all kind of quite looking forward to the sequel, if not really looking forward to it. Elaine, you're probably really um, looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it on the grounds that when have when has James Cameron ever failed? You know, it's going to be the biggest film of all time again, ten times over probably, because everyone's bet against him on this and also on Titanic. So until he fails, then uh, I will continue to think he's probably going to create the biggest film of all time again. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? It's like you bet against James at your peril because he always yes. delivers. But it always seems to be this high-risk gamble. Like, he says that for this film to break even, it needs to be the third or fourth biggest film of all time. But And they haven't released how much it costs, so it probably costs half a billion or something. It's like, wow, okay, that's quite a way to live your career. But it could be great. (laughs) 
Elaine, what do you think? Um, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm a little bit pessimistic about it. I don't know. I'll, I need to go in and have that similar experience. And I suppose I'm worried that I'm not going to, that I'm just going to go in it and what I loved about the first movie just won't be there anymore or that it, it won't stand up to that original experience that I had, you know, that made me want to go back and see it multiple times. Am I going to have that with this one? I don't I don't know. I mean, I'd, it, like Mark says, Mr Cameron hasn't let us down yet and some of the films that I will go back to and, and watch repeatedly and if they're on the telly, I'll just end up watching them even though I've seen them a million times. You know, your Terminator 2 is your Aliens big fantastic action films but with character moments and fantastic performances and actually just thinking about it off the top of my head films that have great roles for women so all of that in in the background makes me a little bit worried <laughs> that I'm just gonna walk in like right I'm ready here I am hit me with it way of water and then I'm just gonna sit there and maybe half an hour in be thinking oh oh maybe this is what other people feel about Avatar. In all fairness two of the three sequels not necessarily to his own films, that James Cameron has made. A good two of the three, you know. Yeah. And the uh, and the first one was a little bit slightly unfortunate. Piranha 2, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's the thing, is that he can do a sequel. I think the thing is, is just, does anyone want a sequel to Avatar? Elaine, did you want a sequel to Avatar? No, no, I, I just sort of, I'll, I'll have my three hours of fun and that'll do. When you say, does anyone want it? I think that does go down to how the legacy of this, which, as we've all said, it's not well remembered, certainly by people who regularly go to the cinema. Do you think that might be because this was so associated with the rollout of 3D and it was used as the stick to get 3D into the cinemas for the next three years, really? It didn't for me, although I have to admit, I did really, really get annoyed when I realised that I had to pay a pound more to see the sequel at the IMAX because of 3D. Mm. It's like, are you trying to get me nostalgic for 2009 because it's not working? Why am I having to pay for 3D? But no, Rob, what do you think? Uh, I don't mind. Like, you know, for this, you know, it, Avatar is a film that I don't mind 3D and I don't mind paying the little bit extra for. It's probably the only sequel that I'd be willing to do that because obviously the 3D experience is considered being so integral to the first film. And, you know, obviously, you know, people talk about this film having had no impact. Obviously, it did pave the way for that spate of uh, 3D films and for, you know, uh, and for the kind of other technological advancements. It's kind of (laughs) irreproducible out of James Cameron's hands. And yeah, what does it mean without, you know, if it's not 2009, what does it mean if it's, you know, when... 3D is kind of regarded now back is back to being a gimmick and we're really familiar with this and it's lost the novelty. I mean, again, as a rule, don't bet against James Cameron, but it, I'm intrigued to see how this does endure. So now with 3D, it's like, well, we don't make 3D tellies anymore. So therefore, it's going to be very hard to see this film at home in 3D because everyone said, we don't want this. This is just not something we're interested in paying more for. And it doesn't really, in the end, add anything. I've never seen a 3D film other than Avatar, I would say. And Piranha 3D, which James Cameron Cameron spoke out about saying this is the worst kind of 3D. Films should not be used in 3D in this way because... Well, you were saying, Mark, it's all about things coming at you, but it's outrageous in terms of what's actually coming at you. So um, it works really well. But Avatar and uh, Piranha 3D, I think, would be the only two films where it's like, yeah, 3D really had something to that. 
because most of the time I used to forget that I was actually watching a 3D film when I was watching a 3D film. It's also coming out in that high frame rate as well, isn't it? Oh, is it? Oh. Have you seen a film in high frame rate, either of you? I yeah. saw Gemini Man. I think I was the one person who did. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I went and saw Gemini Man purely to see it in the high frame rate. Makes your eyes go funny. It also makes a lot of things look cheap as well. Mm. Yeah. Same with, yeah, same with the Hobbit films. Oh God, the Hobbit. Yeah, I saw the first Hobbit film and that was in 48 frames a second. And it just looked like an episode of Merlin that got really lucky with its budget. It's like <laughs> I can just see yeah. the edges of the sets. It looks so fake. It's so weird with these great filmmakers like Cameron and Peter Jackson who just don't seem to realise that if it's not broke, then you shouldn't fix it. And they just seem, no, we have to make it look as real as possible. And it's like but we already know it's not real and it's hard sometimes to suspend your disbelief when something looks absolutely crystal clear. Mm. So this is going to be in HFR as well? Yes, it is, yeah. That bode well. <laughs> well, you'll always have the original Avatar, Elaine. I will, I will, I will. The, or- the original slightly dodgy storytelling problematic avatar, but at least I'm, I've got the neon lights and the twirly things that was, whiz around and uh, some lovely mystical creatures and flying. Stephen Lang. <laughs> Stephen Lang and flying through the Hallelujah Mountains. That's it. It's my life complete now. Yeah, and that big red dragon's good, isn't it? Oh yes, yeah, yeah. That oh, that, you know. Back to your point where you said um, he comes in and and this happens a lot in like the last time you write other films like that where he comes in and he becomes the best of them because he is now Taruk Makto, I think it is this person who only the greatest of the clan can can become and is chosen once in a blue moon and it's of course it's going to be him. Of course it is. Mm. <laughs> he's he's going to fly the the big creature. Yeah. That yes. <laughs> <laughs> Be interesting to see how James Cameron has addressed those sort of things, or if he has. Or if he has. Because no one knows the plot of this movie. Like, the trailers don't give anything away. No. No. It's like, what is the plot of this movie? Oh, uh, anyway. I really hope it's not the same thing where, it, obviously, there's water and there's kids and there's going to be some threat from somewhere. There has to be. That's just how it, how it works, isn't it? I hope it's just not the same thing of, oh, they've moved to another place or they've found a new moon to be on or um, this is another part of Pandora that we didn't realise was there with the water and now someone's going to come and try and take it from them. I really hope we're not going there. But then what are we going to do? What's what's going to be? Is it an internal battle, perhaps, I was thinking? Is it rather than an, an outsider coming in and trying to destroy the family and the community, is it going to be a, a family struggle? Is it going to be like an internal reason? resources battle and that's ultimately you know it's gonna be a pose a bigger threat to the navi because it's not the outside enemy it's the internal struggle yeah that's an interesting thought mm. has everyone seen the running time for it oh no yeah go on mark three hours 12 <laughs> <laughs> not long enough in my opinion you know the problem that <laughs> the problem that avatar was too long put another half an hour on top of it another half an hour it's important to not prejudge absolutely but, yeah and seven minutes of that will be credits, right? So that's a uh, swift three hours five. <laughs> yeah, but they're, they're going to put that preview for the third one in the credits, though. So uh, you better stick around. That's what they are, aren't they? Rob and I are booked in to see it on the 17th of December at seven o'clock in the morning at the IMAX. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so she'll be out by midday for some lunch. <laughs> that's right. I'm considering taking the day off work and going... Which is something I don't do for a lot. I, I do for like the big Marvel films, but 
Yeah, like for for all my, I feel it's such a big event that yeah, I, th- I think I probably will take the day off and uh, do that. And then we have we've now got the laser projection and out in the metro center. So by all accounts, it really helps with a three D. So it takes away a lot of the light loss. So I think I'll probably end up doing that. And Elaine, are you going to be kind of opening day seeing this one? Yeah, I probably will. Um, I work part time, so I've, I've got a little bit more time on my hands. So um, I'm maybe maybe going to one of the earlier showings. I actually really like an early showing. Mm. Whilst I'm laughing about the seven a.m. for me, that's perfect. <laughs> that you know, just going in early doors with hardly anyone else there, and we'll see what happened with that with Avatar. Because usually, if I go to an early showing, I'm like one of only three people in. But yeah, going to one of the early ones and just having a day of it, see what it's all about. We also need to go to one of the early ones because, you know, we've got actually lives and kids to pick up and stuff like <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, 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 that as well. But um, I'm thinking about, you know, just the pleasure of being in the cinema very early with my cup of hot chocolate. Better make it um, large for that. Yeah, please. and getting ready for three hours, 12 minutes of Avatar. <sighs> yeah, there's a big sigh from Mark there. <laughs> <laughs> and you are obviously going to be reviewing it for the Honeymoon Period podcast, right? I suspect we will be. Oh, absolutely, bit, absolutely, yeah. yeah. You, if, if you want to listen, you can have this argument, but just the two of us. Um, <laughs> and with an extra half hour on the end of it. Yeah, <laughs> It's going to be ace listen to that. Okay then, so is there anything else to say about the original Avatar before we wrap up? Nothing from me. And uh, nothing from me. Oh, Elaine, I thought you were going to say one more thing that you liked about it. I was looking at my notes to see if I had anything else, but no, there was nothing there. Well, again, thank you for just knowing all of the names. I knew you would. <laughs> uh, and Mr. Wallace? No, I think that probably does it for me as well. Rightio. Well, Mark and Elaine, thank you so much for coming on and taking this trip to Pandora with us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. And if people wanted to find you on the internet to hear more of your film-related thoughts, where could they do that? You can find us at The Honeymoon Pod on Twitter and Instagram, or you can find our podcast anywhere you get a podcast or at www.thehoneymoonperiod.com. Fantastic. Well, once again, thank you very much for coming on. And once again, thank you very much for having us. We still see you. (laughs) In cryo, you don't dream at all. It doesn't feel like six years. More like a fifth of tequila and an ass kicking. Tommy was a scientist, not me. He was the one who wanted to get shot light years out in space to find the answers. Are we there yet? Yeah, we're there, sunshine. We're there. It's about your brother. So a week before Tommy's gonna ship out, the guy with a gun ends his journey. ahead was Pandora. You grew up hearing about it, but I never figured I'd be going there. And well, that brings our discussion of James Cameron's past filmography to a close. What a journey. Yeah, indeed. What a journey. And I really do think that the... (laughs) Unobtainium was the friends we made along the way. Isn't it always? But with this one, it just seems to be 
doubly so. But uh, yeah, that was quite an epic voyage through the work of James Cameron, wasn't it? Yeah, he's certainly got his themes. Interesting filmmaker, complicated man, James Cameron. Yes, yes, I think that's a pretty good way to describe him. Yeah, it's actually, yeah, it's it's been more fun than I thought it would be to go back and read. I always knew that it would be fun to talk about his films because we've just got some amazing guests on and I always knew it was going to be a blast talking about T2 with you. But going back and re-watching his films has been more fun than I thought it would be. I don't know why I thought, I don't know, I just thought it would be like, okay, it'll be, it'll be good to go back and watch these films. But actually going back and watching them was like, oh, there's a reason why I really, really like this director. Yeah, you do get swept up in them, even when you're approaching them from the perspective of, okay, a bit of analysis. But that's the thing, they are. James Cameron is a phenomenal blockbuster filmmaker. Yeah. An incredible talent. And I am looking forward to seeing Avatar The Way of Water. If nothing else, it will operate on a uh, spectacular scale. Well, I'm thinking if nothing else, it's going to scratch the itch that I've got of, what is this film like? Because... Over the course of talking about his other films and it all building up to Avatar, which is a film that I think we ultimately have settled on. It has its moments, but it's one of the least interesting films that he's made. But this is all you're doing now is Avatar movies and we're going to get another one. And as we've talked about many times on the previous episodes, it's so long after, etc, etc. It doesn't seem as if there was a huge clamour for it. So what have you delivered with an Avatar sequel that kind of justifies the cost and three hours and ten minutes of my time? So I am looking forward to seeing it just because I literally have no idea what it's going to be like. So we will see. I hear that it's more nuanced and complex than the first movie. It couldn't be any less, I don't think. But... It will be interesting to see how much of a, I don't know, involved narrative it has versus how much of just a pretty simple story with, again, some environmentalism and action added into it. Yeah, I don't Yeah, I don't think you can come to Avatar expecting um, particularly nuanced themes. But then again, it's not a film that's designed for that. I don't know, Rob, I'm expecting you The know. Godfather Part 2. So if I don't get that, I'm going to be a bit disappointed. Particularly as the running times are very, very similar. So weird you mentioned uh, Godfather Part 2 because Frankie Pentangeli just turned up in the episode of Columbo I'm watching. <laughs> well, I don't fancy his chances. No, uh, he, well, no, he does. He, he is the victim. <laughs> oh, right. I was thinking he'd be the murderer and then he would get caught at the end. But, well, his chances I didn't fancy even earlier now. Yeah, he just basically turns up, yells a bit and then gets poisoned. <laughs> he does that so well. <laughs> Well, before we go, shall we thank our guests one more time for just being uniformly excellent and elevating the level of discussion? Yeah, we certainly should. Thank you to Sarah Budry and MJ Smith of Let's Jules for a Minute for a wonderful discussion of Piranha 2, The Spawning. A.K.A. Piranha 2, Flying Killers. Yeah, just just the better title. (laughs) An equal thanks to Cameron Harrison and to Jesse Bailey of the Open Pike Night podcast for coming on and just being excellent when talking about The Terminator. And thank you to Sarah Johnson for a marvellous discussion of Aliens. Thank you to Adrian Zach for an equally marvellous discussion of The Abyss. And thank you to Chris Carr for bringing his spy knowledge to uh, True Lies. And you skipped over T2. And thank you, Rob, for just bringing your passion oh. and enthusiasm to T2. 
You can't thank yourself, oh, no, but I will thank you. Exactly. <laughs> oh, thank you, mate. Well, no, no, thank you. I mean, any time. It's, uh, you know, it's not... Trick of T2 isn't, isn't getting me to talk. It's getting me to shut up. Yeah, indeed. Who wants that? Not me. Thank you to Alex Leadbeater for taking the Titanic voyage with us. And it has to be said, bringing some pretty good knowledge of Titanic the movie and also the event and the ship to the podcast. Uh, yeah, Alex is, uh, as you may have guessed, a bit of a Titanic buff. He is. And last but certainly not least, thank you to Mark and Elaine Gregerson for the uh, discussion you've just heard about Avatar. Absolutely. And you can find Mark and Elaine's thoughts on film and TV at the Honeymoon Period podcast. We strongly recommend you go and check that out. Well, Rob, that's it. That is our revisit of the James Cameron filmography, the first time we did that with a director. We'll have to decide who's going to be next. But yeah, we are merely days away from Avatar The Way of Water. In a few short days, we will see what Avatar The Way of Water is like. And yes, so that will be good. Cool. Well, shall we wrap it up with our plugs? Yes. Well, if you're looking for me online, you can find me on Twitter for the moment. At Robert M. Wallace, you can also find my writing, uh, such as it is, as at of all the film sites, www.ofallthefilmsites.com. Uh, Mr. Daniel and I host uh, a separate podcast called Another Time McLeod. Uh, which is a scene-by-scene analysis of the cult classic Highlander. Uh, It's currently on hiatus, but we've got a very, uh, I'd like like to think, impressive backlog of episodes, Uh, essentially the the entirety of the film up until this point. And you can find that wherever you're listening to this, uh, or follow that on Twitter, at McLeodTime, or even drop us a Highlander-themed email at whowantstopodforever at gmail.com. Great, thank you. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Rob underscore A underscore Daniel. You can also find me at Letterboxd at letterboxd.com slash Rob Dan. You can find my writing at electric-shadows.com. More importantly, if you want to follow this podcast, you can do that at MovieRobcast on Twitter. And you can drop us a movie-related email at MovieRobcast at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, why not leave us a star rating? and or review wherever you listen to your podcast. It's always great to get the feedback and it is much appreciated. So the next time we speak to you, we will have seen Avatar The Way of Water and you will be hearing all of our thoughts on that. So yeah, until then, cheers Rob for this big James Cameron journey. (laughs) Well, thank you, Mr. Daniel. And we will speak to you again very, very soon. Well, I'm joined now by the man that everyone wants to speak to here on the blue carpet tonight. He's kept us waiting for 13 years. James Cameron, come on, what's your excuse? No why, why have we been waiting no so No apologies long? whatsoever. No. Not no. Well, the truth of it is I was sitting by the pool painting my nails for 12 years this and working on the thought. movie for one year. Right. right. So I think it's pretty good work for one year, don't you think? Yeah, look, the oh, original. It was a lot, of, a lot of time spent, you know, working on the script for four movies, production design for four movies, bunch of new technology we needed to do cool stuff like that right and uh, then we started full tilt five years ago September of 07 and then we shot two movies actually part of a part of a third one so, so we, we won't have long to wait for the one after that's, that's the point right so three will come out in a couple years and then four will come out in a couple years and boom 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 right and that way you won't forget about us. The original is, remains the highest grossing film of all time. I mean, how much does that pile the pressure on to you then? Do you get nervous at all? Yeah, like the it? first year was spent crying in the corner, okay? No, I, I don't think about that. It's not, you know, when you're working when you're working with amazing people like, like the, my cast and uh, 
the artists that I work with to design all this amazing stuff, I just don't think about it. I think about it tonight, you know, because you're always reminding me. But <laughs> it, It's a three hours plus film, isn't it? I have just to say, for the record, I've watched it's three it. hours and two minutes of program, okay? And then I think half an hour of credits. No, it doesn't, right? I know you're being dragged away. Um, it, it, it does kind of motor along, right? Yeah, yeah you kind yeah. of lose track of time. The environmentalism aspect to this. Now does it feel more prescient to be releasing a film like this? Do you think it's going to resonate a bit more? Look, I think it resonated with the first film back then. A lot of people picked up on that messaging around the rainforest and around it, the, the plight of indigenous cultures around the world. We have that in spades now because nothing has really gotten that much better in the meantime. This one is my love letter to, to the oceans and a cry for people everywhere to, to, you know, be responsible for guardianship of the oceans. So, you know, one can always hope that, that, that maybe even just for a few people that resonates. Everybody else can just go on the adventure and have a good time.